When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful and shaken saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson, glad to have you back. In fact, I'm so impressed that you are back at all after so many incredibly long lessons that I figure I'd give you a break today and let you off early for good behavior. Actually, it wasn't my choice, it was the scriptures. This week we only have the book of Esther to cover and it's fairly short, just 10 chapters. Uh, it's only one of two books in the Old Testament that is named after a woman, the other being Ruth. And so if you're into women in the scriptures, as I am, it's, uh, this is an amazing book. Uh, to put to shine the spotlight on one of our incredible sister saints. It's also one of the only two books in the Old Testament that doesn't explicitly mention God, the other being Song of Solomon, uh, which you may have guessed. But it does come as a surprise to most people that, wait, Esther doesn't talk about God at all? Well, it, in some ways it's so appropriate that he wouldn't be explicitly mentioned in this book because he, it forces us to do a little bit deeper looking, uh, to find him in these pages. And I think the context historically of this book is, is perfect to, to give us that kind of mission or that goal. Because what's happening, if you remember last week with Ezra and Nehemiah and the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, uh, they're coming back in waves, it's starting slow. Uh, but this happens, the, the, as far as we can understand, the history in the book of Esther takes place Oh, kind of right between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. Uh, Zerubbabel has already come back with the first wave of people to rebuild the temple. Uh, Ezra has not yet come with the second wave to help re-enthrone the law. Uh, and so Nehemiah is still off in the distance as far as uh, rebuilding the city walls. All those things we discussed last week. And what's interesting is, is Ezra and Nehemiah focuses on what's happening in Jerusalem during the... the reign of the Persians, and the book of Esther will pan back to Persia and see what's happening there uh, in the Persian Empire. And if there were ever a time in Jewish history, if there were ever a place in Old Testament geography where you would need to search a little harder for God, it's in books like Esther. Because here she is, a, a Jew, growing up in enemy territory, there in the capital of Persia. We will see the same thing when we get to the book of Daniel. Uh, and there's Daniel. In fact, Esther, in some ways, is the female equivalent to Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, she is a female equivalent of Joseph of Egypt. I mentioned in, in past lessons that if you look hard enough, uh, you'll find often a female equivalent of the male heroes that we see in Scripture. And Esther is such a perfect personification of that because, like Joseph, she is in foreign territory. And she rises in the ranks until she's second only to the king. In Joseph's case, second only to the Pharaoh. And to see how do you, how do you navigate life in enemy territory? To see Daniel and the, his three Hebrew friends doing the same thing uh, around this same time period. I hope that we have eyes to see the lessons that they're teaching us. Since we tend to be living in enemy territory as well. And like I said, with Esther particularly, 
I hope we have eyes to see the hand of God, even during time periods where it seems like he might be absent. Uh, when, when Babylon is on the rise or, or Persia on the prowl uh, and in places where it seems like he might be harder to locate. Uh, is the God of Israel present in the larger world? And can I find him and his guidance even somewhere in, in the Babylonian or Persian empires? I hope so. Uh, we, we have to learn how to do it. And who better to teach us than Esther? This is another amazing book uh, to, to help people celebrate. If you have little kids and you really want to get into the book of Esther, then read it the way the Jews do. Uh, I've sometimes joked that of all the, the holidays, uh, Halloween is the one that you should feel the least guilty about. Uh, we often feel guilty at Christmas or at Easter because we get too commercialized or focus on lesser things and we forget the real meaning of it all. Whereas with, with Halloween, it's like, well, is there a real meaning to it all? Isn't it just go get candy? Uh, I don't have to feel guilty about trick-or-treating, do I? Well, in, in Israel, I was there as a student doing a study abroad in college, and I happened to be there during uh, Purim, as it's said in, in Hebrew. Uh, Purim, uh, Purim, as it might be said in English. But the, the, the festival or the holy day of Purim grows out of the book of Esther. And some people, uh, taking a surface level approach to it, consider it the Jewish equivalent of Halloween. Uh, it's the same kind of people that call Hanukkah the Jewish equivalent of, of Christmas, which it isn't. It's so much more than that. Uh, but there are enough similarities that I, that I can see why people would draw the parallel. And the same is true of Purim as far as Halloween is concerned. Because we went to a Jewish synagogue that night and people, the, the kids were all dressed up uh, in costumes. Uh, they did a, this, this is where it gets a little different. Uh, they, the main part of the festivity is to read the book of Esther in its entirety. Thankfully, it's, it's short enough that you can do that. But that's one of the traditions that they do on, on that night. Uh, as they celebrate it. And part of the costumes behind it all might be what we were talking about before. Is God hidden? Is his face concealed here? And do we need to look a little deeper behind the mask of, oh, mere you know, human interactions? Because so much of what we'll see uh, seems like it could be done without divine aid. It wasn't. Uh, but again, look past the mask and, and see God there. It might also represent the fact that, that Esther had to conceal her true identity as she first approached the king and entered the palace. Uh, the fact that he didn't know, no one knew that she was Jewish. Uh, and so hence a need for costumes as well. There's even a, a, an equivalent of trick-or-treating because much of, of Purim has to do with giving uh, it's less about the tricks, although Haman is, is famous for trying to pull some of those, and more about the treats, that there is a, a tradition of, of giving food uh, to one another during Purim. There's a tradition of providing for the poor and the needy that day. And one of the highlights is this great celebratory meal that we Christians have on Easter and Christmas, uh, but that they have uh, at pretty much every, every High Holy Day uh, to be able to celebrate with one another, their loved ones, the deliverance that came to them uh, during this time period. So if, if you want to have some fun uh, with uh, the book of Esther, and if you have little kids or grandkids, have them dress up uh, and give them food and have them share the food with one another. Oh, and while you're reading the book of Esther to them, uh, whether or not you choose to do it in its entirety or not, 
in Jewish festivals or celebrations of this event, every time the name Haman or Haman is mentioned in the text, everyone boos and hisses and they have noisemakers that they'll, they'll stamp the, their feet on the floor. Some would even write the, the, the name Haman on their shoes. So when they're stamping, it feels like they're stamping out their worst adversary. Uh, and so when we did it in, when we were at that synagogue in Israel, we got to boo and hiss every time Haman's name was mentioned as well. You'll see, I think it's 54 times. And so you get plenty of time. It's, a, it's almost a melodrama with lots of uh, audience participation. Uh, but if we can participate enough in our study to be able to see just why they'd be so up in arms against Haman, why they would be so willing to give to one another and provide uh, why would they would want to feast, since we'll see some fasting uh, in this book? And most importantly, why we would look past the mask to be able to see a God who is only concealed insofar as we don't have the eyes to see him. His hand is shining throughout the text. Uh, and so let's look for it. In verse 1, or chapter 1, excuse me, we first meet the king of, of Persia. His name in the book of Esther is Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerus. Don't worry about pronunciation so much. Uh, I'm sure in their uh, language and their accent, it would have sounded very different anyway. And especially that's the case with him, because Ahasuerus is his name in the Bible, but according to world history, it's most likely that this was Xerxes I of Persia, uh, famous for attacking the Greeks in the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, there's a lot of interesting world history that ties into the Bible during this, during this period. But notice how we meet him when the, the spotlight first starts to shine. Verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this is Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 107 and 20 provinces. First thing the, the narrator wants us to know is just how powerful, just how mighty Xerxes or Ahasuerus is. Uh, he basically runs or, and rules the known world as far as they were concerned. And so are you feeling intimidated already? Uh, are you going to have some empathy for Esther when she has to go before this ruler of, of everything that, they, that the world knows? In verse 3 and 4, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty, many days, even an hundred and fourscore days. You want to talk about somebody who doesn't get tired of partying. Now, 180 days, we're talking six-month feast. Now, part of that may have been to discuss the fortunes of the, the Persian Empire. Part of it may have been discussing battle plans, especially if he has all of the princes and the nobles from the provinces. How are we going to expand the empire? Or how are we going to keep the peace? Uh, if I can wine and dine you, and we'll see an emphasis on the wine in just a moment, then perhaps I will convince you to be more loyal subjects. Perhaps, perhaps I can convince you to provide soldiers to be able to go take on the Greeks. Uh, it's only a matter of time before the Persian Empire will wane and the, the Greek Empire will wax with Alexander the Great. But if you want to talk about a display of royal power, then this is it. Now again, we need to keep that in mind in order to understand just what Esther was facing when she had to go before the king. Now the next few verses keep magnifying the king's power and glory. It describes the surroundings of the palace, colorful hangings, 
pillars of marble, mosaic floors of precious stones, gold and silver, and like I said, wine and dining, royal wine flowing in abundance. Verse 8, the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Now, the way that's translated by the King James translators, it sounds like, oh, maybe this is moderation in all things. They drank according to the law, and nobody forced anyone. Well, other translations are probably closer to the truth. The New International Version, for example, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So the exact opposite of moderation in all things. You're getting a sense of a man that is intoxicated with his own power. Drunk on his own glory. Uh, kind of staggering around, surrounded by people that only want to build him up. Uh, and, and only want to build up themselves as well. We'll see that clearly in, in Haman. But a time of hedonism, a time of, of incredible excess. I mean, again, a, a party that lasts half a year. No restrictions, no restraints. Give in to your animal nature and eat and drink beyond any kind of limitation. Give in to physical appetite to the full. Now, it's in the midst of that kind of revelry that you meet one of the other women in scriptures that deserves our attention. And this is Queen Vashti. I wish we knew more of her backstory. I wish we knew more of her personality. This, we, we get, catch just a glimpse, which was more than she was willing to give uh, her husband and, and her, his drunken friends. But I hope that we can Oh, flesh out this character a little bit more to try to understand what might be going on in her mind and heart during these moments. Verse 9, Also Vashti the queen made a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. The men and women feasted separately during these festivities, and so I'm not trying to suggest that this verse is horribly misogynistic, although there is a hint, at least, at the very end when it speaks of the royal house, which belonged to the king. Uh, now, that would be the assumption, but to make it clear, again, I think the narrator, this book is incredibly well written, by the way. Literarily, it's a masterpiece. And so as the narrator is painting this picture or getting ready to, to, to get to the dramatic part, just reminding everyone, oh yeah, the, the, everything revolves around the king so far in this scene. Uh, it's his kingdom, it's his riches, it's his glory, it's his uh, princes and nobles, it's his wife and his house, and everything belongs to him. Now in verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, and if it's to, to excess with no restraint, then you can imagine just how far gone he is. He commanded the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. Now, on the one hand, I suppose we could read this innocently and give Ahasuerus the benefit of the doubt, uh, that it's simply uh, a matter of inviting the queen to come and make her royal presence known. But I don't know if Ahasuerus deserves the benefit of the doubt, especially after seven days of giving in to his basest nature. And so now marry with wine, which is probably a euphemism for just as, as wasted or plastered or whatever word you want to use for being drunk. Now he wants to 
He sends his servants, they're at his command, to go get his wife, because she supposedly is at his command as well, and drag her out to show off to the people, show them her beauty. I mean, she's fair to look upon. And certainly these drunken revelers that are giving in to the physical appetite as far as food and drink is concerned, why not give in to the physical appetite as far as lust is concerned? What's interesting about this moment is that it seems to have nothing to do with Vashti as a person. Another way to say it, not, nothing to do with Vashti as an agent unto herself, rather simply as an object under the control of her husband. I don't think Ahasuerus is showing her off for her sake, but rather for his. If everything we've read in these first oh, nine or ten verses is about his glory and his wealth and shine the spotlight on me, then the only reason he's even bringing his wife into the spotlight is to add some more reflected glory upon himself. We have to get a sense here of, of an incredible amount of selfish pride on the king's part. Uh, we'll see it only surpassed by Haman. And maybe that's been put here as foils to just make Haman look all the worst, that anybody can exceed King Ahasuerus in, in this self-centeredness. But you want to talk about a loss of self-control. You want to talk about an objectification of women, specifically his own wife. Uh, in our day, we, we use the term trophy wife sometimes. And, and that's a sad term. Because again, it objectifies that woman as if she was simply something to, again, draw the attention to whoever's arm she happens to be hanging on. Women, you are better than that. And Vashti was, and Vashti knew it. In verse 12, the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Now, if you pause at the end of verse 12 and ask yourself two questions. First, what does that verse suggest about the queen? That she would stand up to her king, to her husband, the king, uh, and the mighty king Xerxes I, the mighty king Ahasuerus. Don't you realize he's got 127 provinces that he's in charge of? And who do you think you are? Well, glad you asked, because I think highly of myself, not in the prideful way my husband does, but... I, I measure my own worth, and it's not simply to add to his worth in the eyes of other people. She must have had a strong personality. She must have known that she was an agent, not an object, and therefore refused to be objectified. I've sometimes worried as I look around the world today and see whether it's male or female, because we both have similar problems in this, that one gender often accuses the other gender of a certain shallowness, whereas they're not pushing that other gender to look very deep. If we are content with surface level kinds of things, and that's where, how we define ourselves, and that's what we hope people will be, will be drawn to, then I don't think it's fair to accuse the, the, the opposite person of shallowness when you didn't, you didn't make them look very deep. There is depth in Vashti as far as I can, can imagine here. But that's only the first question. The second question is, what does that verse suggest about the king? Again, that he can simply snap his fingers and send some chamberlains and some servants and go bring the, the, the queen back. 
Again, she is such a peripheral character as far as his glory is concerned. And how does he react to her agency instead of her as an object? He's wroth. His anger is burning in him, which suggests that this is a man used to getting his own way. The fact that anyone would stand up to him is so oh, infuriating, especially when he's surrounded by the people that he's trying to convince of his power and authority. The last thing I need are these nobles and princes from all these provinces to come and question my authority. And so to have my wife somehow dropping hints that my authority can be questioned, that's the last thing that I can allow in my own palace. And so what does he do? He asks his wise men in verse 15, what shall we do unto the queen Vashti? According to law, we got to make sure that it doesn't look like I'm, I'm weak and vengeful. Rather, I, I'm simply executing justice according to the law of our day. And I do the same for any, against any of you nobles and princes out there. So again, that's why he's asking. Because she hath not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. Here's a man who's punitive and, and seeking blame, but trying to hide his own weakness behind oh, the law. Uh, a sense of justice that, is, that has been outraged when it really it was his pride that was, that was pricked. In some ways, he's simply looking for justification to punish someone and you know, sharing the, the blame for that by involving these wise men. Help, help me feel good about what I'm about to do, uh, even though it's pretty petty. Now, in verse 16, Memukan was one of them, these wise men. He answers before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen hath not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes, to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. Talk about blowing things out of proportion. Uh, and yet, as all the princes of the provinces are looking on, th that was wise on the part of this wise man. Let's make sure that they feel equally enraged by this. Well, we can't have them questioning the king's authority. Let's have them question their own authority instead. Perhaps that will help cement their loyalty to the king. As they would have to start wondering, what if my wife did this back at home? What if my subjects had, had wills of their own and began to exercise them? The irony there, though, is, again, wise as far as the cunning of the world is concerned, but to think about something that could have simply been interpreted as a justified private action on the part of the queen. I mean, think about how Ahasuerus, if he were truly wise, could have played that off and, and allowed it to be something that spoke highly of, of his wife's power. Uh, he could have come up with excuses or explanations or whatever it might be. But no, he turned her individual decision into a universal offense. Oh, this is this slippery slope. And if you let one woman step out of line, then all the women and all the subjects will be stepping out of line as well. So we have to nip this in the bud and do it boldly because they can't afford to let it spread. In verse 17, that's what they say. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported that the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen, 
Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. The New International Version describes that as there will be no end of disrespect and discord. You know, ironically, for someone who is being horribly objectified uh, in this story, it sure seems that Queen Vashti has potentially an immense amount of power as far as her example is concerned. And for her to, to advocate for herself, for her to exercise a righteous will, to, re to measure her own worth and realize I am a daughter of God, not a, the trophy wife of the king. I mean, for that influence to spread, they're admitting the power of this one woman. I, I, I hesitate to make things so overtly gendered, but the narrator in this story seems to be doing exactly that. Again, so much of this, the climax will be there at the end of chapter 4 and into the beginning of chapter 5. And all that we're seeing so far is, is preparing us for that moment when another woman will have the courage to exercise her agency, to face the king and to do something not at his request, uh, to see what's already happened with Vashti. We need to understand that to, to see just how intense the drama is when it's Esther's turn to do something similar. But I do want to point out the irony here that, you know, if you're really that concerned about Vashti's actions, then don't treat her in such a way where those actions are justified. And the same would happen, it would be true of all the people in all the provinces and all these princes and nobles and so on. If you don't want your wife to act like Vashti, then don't act like Ahasuerus. Think about that. To borrow from a friend who has far more wisdom than I do, uh, when women sometimes wrestle with gender issues in the church, is it a doctrinal dilemma that stands behind it, or is it personal experience? In other words, is it that they wonder about their place in the eyes of God, or is it that they've been treated poorly at home uh, by a husband that is guilty of unrighteous dominion? or negative experiences in the ward or the stake with priesthood leaders that are, again, guilty of some unrighteous dominion. Like I've already said, I think Vashti is completely justified. She is courageous and right. There's some righteous indignation in her refusal to come at her husband's snap of the fingers. And, and he deserves that. Amen to the priesthood of that man, we would say, quoting the Doctrine and Covenants 121. Well, all of that reality and all of that irony is lost on the king and the princes and nobles. Go figure, they're all males. Now, but in verse 19, they say, If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered. That was one of the rules as far as the, the laws of the realm. Once it's down in the books, it cannot be changed. We'll see why that matters later on. But here's the rule, the unchangeable edict that they're asking for. That Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Better than she? Again, we don't know enough about her to fully round out her character. But I think it'd be hard to come by if you're looking for someone better than she is. We may have found one in Esther, admittedly. We know more about her. 
uh, but I am amazed by the strength of this noble woman. And so instead of being an example for women to follow, which I hope she is for us, they turn Vashti into a cautionary tale, a warning against other women that if you don't come on your husband's terms, then you will not come at all. Uh, you will be removed forcibly if necessary, and your place will be given to someone better than you. And by better, we mean more subservient, more willing to be objectified. Well, in Vashti's case, she may have counted the cost if she knew her husband well enough and moved forward with courage regardless. Vashti may have lost her social value, but she never lost her sense of personal worth. And that's a lesson we all need to learn from her. The, the outer appearance was something that would have been so easily recognized, even by a bunch of drunken revelers. But the sense of personal dignity and individual worth, oh, that would have been harder to see. For that, you have to look deeper, further inward. And for that, the person themselves, the Vashti in each of us, hopefully is developing that kind of introspection to be able to see our own worth in God's eyes. Well, none of that crosses Ahasuerus' mind. And in verse 20, when the king's decree, which he shall make, shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, just like you are, almighty king, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. Well, small honor, if that, since it's being forced upon them. Anyway, the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memicon. And of course, it pleased the king and the princes. They're all men, after all. But a good reminder for all of us that honor, which is what they were suggesting, would automatically flow to their husbands by this show of strength rather than the, a, a better show of humanity. It, it shows us that respect like that, honor like that, in reality is not something that can be demanded. It can't be forced. I mean, there's an old saying about, oh, that person commands respect. But there's a difference if it said that person demands respect. Uh, the way we typically understand that saying, to command respect is not something that is compulsory. Without compulsory means, the doctrine of the priesthood will flow unto you. It will distill upon the soul. Again, that's DNC 121. Uh, DNC 121, as far as righteous uh, priesthood authority, would be such a powerful foil for Esther chapter 1. DNC 121 is the way it's supposed to be. Esther chapter 1, unfortunately, is the way that it often ends up being. DNC 121 is commanding respect. Esther 1 is demanding respect. And only one way works. The chapter that ends in verse 22. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house, and that it should be published according to the language of every people. Now what we're seeing here is the narrator setting up an incredibly patriarchal story. And a, a woman better know her place, and, and it's a very low and subservient one. All of this will make Esther's role in the chapters that come next all the more impressive, all the more brave on her part. And we need to, to understand that. In chapter 2 of Esther, we now get to meet our title character. 
Verse 1, after these things, all that's behind us, but that is the background out of which this story will emerge. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Now, this is another place where we have to read in the emotions. But how does he feel as he remembers Vashti? His wrath has been appeased. Perhaps enough time has passed that the hangover is over. And he's starting to think a little more clearly and second-guessing what he did in his moment of rage. Is he having second thoughts about this decree? If so, it's too late. Uh, the law of the Medes and the Persians is, is irrevocable. And for him to feel some regret, perhaps, what was I thinking? I was only thinking about myself. Who was I trying to impress? All these other people that... Yeah, six-month party, but I probably won't see many of them ever again. And yet the woman that I had, that I was married to, one that I looked to as a companion, again, we don't know enough about the, the relationship between the two, but the way this chapter begins with this sense of remembering her does seem to suggest some kind of remorse and regret on his part. Again, if she's the type that would stand up to him, a, a powerful ruler like him probably was attracted to that kind of self-assurance and courage on her part. She seems to be every bit his equal in terms of strength and every bit his superior in terms of dignity. In verse 2, what's he going to do next then? There's no going back to Vashti. So then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hege. Later it'll be spelled Hegai. It's the same person. He's the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women. And let their things for purification be given them. Now those verses still seem to suggest an objectification of women taking place. Just go find them and bring them in. Oh, I'm sure they'll be honored. They get to come to the king's palace and, and be cared for by the, the king's own chamberlains, these eunuchs most likely. This will be the ultimate honor and adventure for each of them. Verse 4, Let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. And of course that thing is going to please the king. What's not to be pleased about? He's going to get something that's pleasing to him. You see the word that's repeated? Oh, beware of shallow and self-serving pleasures. And beware of those that are, that are appealing to them. Now, so far, like I said, the spotlight has been on Ahasuerus. Uh, a little reflection on to Vashti. Now the camera will pan, and we're going to see all oh, the other characters that will, that will focus our attention the rest of this book. In verse 5, Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew. It's the first thing we know about him. Even before we get his name, we get his religious identity. A Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity. Now, so far, this is all we know about Mordecai, but it's enough to start fleshing out his character. He's Jewish, first and foremost, is what we've got to remember. He's a Benjamite. Huh. 
Okay, from one of the smallest tribes. Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob slash Israel. His was the tribe that was almost completely annihilated in the aftermath of the rape of the Levite concubine back in the book of Judges. Uh, Benjamin had some issues as a tribe. And yet, up to this point, one of the most famous Benjamites was King Saul. In fact, Saul was, his father's name was Kish. And that's another name in Mordecai's ancestry as well. Is there some connection between the two? The author, the narrator seems to be drawing some. And that's actually a parallel that will come in handy a little bit later when we meet Haman. So keep some of these details in the back of your mind. And then that last one, that he was carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, that puts him in the same boat as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, this is, uh, would have been a youth with great potential, uh, but there he is living in Shushan, uh, the capital of the Persian Empire, with the choice to make. Will I remain Jewish as you first learned of me, or am I becoming Persian? Who, wh where does my loyalty lie? And is my heart still back in Jerusalem, back in Zion? Or have I been lulled away by these, the tugs and pulls of this wicked world? We're going to see more of that in the very next verse when we meet our title character. In verse 7, he brought up Hadassah. Now, wait, Hadassah? Who's that? I actually loved uh, in my old seminary days to ask the students, do you remember that one girl in the scripture? I'm pretty sure she was in the Old Testament. She, she becomes the queen uh, and she takes the place of a queen that was deposed by the king because he was angry with her. And they're like, oh, oh, you mean Esther? I'm like, no, that's not her. That's not her. Um, it's the one... Oh, come on, guys, you know this one. She was uh, incredibly brave. She had to go face the king, had to muster the courage to go and uh, go in unto him and, and plead that he would spare her people. And like, yeah, that's Esther. I'm like, no, it's not. It's the one, and, and pretty soon they get so frustrated with me that I just couldn't extend it any longer. I'm like, okay, fine. Yes, you're right. You know her as Esther, but that's not her name. Her name was Hadassah. And that's the first thing we get to know about her. Her name was Hadassah. She was brought up by Mordecai. Keep reading. Hadassah. Oh, that is Esther. Okay, gotcha. So you were right. Why the difference? Well, hold on. His uncle's daughter, so their cousins, Mordecai and Esther are. She had neither father nor mother. And we don't know why. That something happened in the captivity. And something happened back in Israel. I, I don't know the details. But one thing we do know is that the maid was fair and beautiful, which was one of the distinguishing features of Vashti before her, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Now that last detail makes this an amazing example of the power and influence of extended family, that this cousin, Mordecai, considerably older, enough to, to look at, at Hadassah as a daughter, not a simple cousin, is willing to step in and take the place of her parents. I mean, to understand what Esther must have gone through, I don't know how old she, we don't know how old she was when she lost her parents. Did she ever know them? No clue. But to have come from a difficult circumstance and now to be raised by this cousin, Mordecai, we'll see the significance of their relationship as, as time goes on. But go back to the name change. Because if, if, if Hadassah comes as a total surprise to us, 
uh, and we didn't even know that that was her real name, that we have, then we have been guilty of oh, taking the Persians at their word. And the word was, don't call her Hadassah, call her Esther instead. We're going to see the same problem when it comes to Daniel, thankfully whose, name, whose Hebrew name sticks. But also with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, since those are not their Hebrew names either. We'll hold on to the book of Daniel until we get to them. But what's happening here, Hadassah means myrtle or myrtle tree. And uh, later in, in the Minor Prophets, we'll see that as a, that the myrtle tree as a symbol of peace and rest. But also, Esther, if it's based in Hebrew, it can come from a verb meaning to hide or to conceal. That would be appropriate, since she's going to have to conceal her Jewishness if she ever hopes to be brought into the palace of the king. It's appropriate for a god who is hiding behind human action throughout this narrative. But most scholars don't oh, chalk up Esther as a Hebrew name. They consider it more of a Persian one one that was assigned to her at some point. You see, Esther may be a play on the word Ishtar, which is the chief Persian goddess, a Mesopotamian goddess. We, I mean, we saw the pantheon of, of Egypt with the battle uh, against Jehovah in the plagues of Egypt. We saw with Elijah and the priests of Baal up on the top of Mount Carmel a contest with the, the Canaanite pantheon. Well, now it's going to be a matter of the God of Israel, who doesn't seem to show up in this book, or at least not explicitly. Uh, it's foreign territory, after all, so maybe he couldn't find his way out of Israel. Uh, he's still stuck back there. Oh, is he? But to have Ishtar, which would have been the, the goddess of love, the goddess of war, those two sadly sometimes go hand in hand. She's the equivalent of the Greeks' Athena, or the Romans Venus, and for Ishtar, Esther, it's the same consonants there. Are we trying to get you to forget the fact that you are a, a Hebrew symbol of peace and rest, and instead you are meant to follow the, the, the worship of the mighty Ishtar? The same could be said of Mordecai as well. Now some want to say, well, that could be a Hebrew term, uh, a combination of words meaning bitter and oppressed or crushed. Since the Jews in Mordecai's day were living a bitter life, uh, crushed under the Persian thumb. But then again, that could also be a play off of Mesopotamian deities. Because if the chief goddess is Ishtar, well, let's call you Esther, and the chief god is Marduk, and we'll call you Mordecai. Same consonants there as well. And Marduk would have been the, the chief Mesopotamian deity, kind of like the Greeks, Zeus, or the Roman Jupiter. And if that's the case, well, as we'll see in the days of Daniel and his friends, the last thing we want is for you to remember any kind of connection with the God of Israel. So let us associate you with our gods, and every time you are called by your name, your new name, you realize that you're not who you used to be. You're one of us, and our gods have now become your own. Well, whatever name she happens to go by, this young, beautiful woman was brought to the palace, along with the other fair young maidens from all throughout the, the empire. She was put in the custody of Haggai, one of the king's chamberlains, 
And in verse 9, the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification, with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. I mentioned the equivalent to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mentioned the equivalent to Joseph in Egypt. This is another one of those parallels to him, where everywhere he went, he had the Midas touch, and everything seemed to turn to gold under his supervision, to the point that everyone who met him elevated him, almost to the point of equality with them. How did Pharaoh feel about Joseph? How did the jailer feel about Joseph? How did Pharaoh feel about Joseph? Well, we see a similar thing here. And the first oh, Persian to really come to know Hadassah, Esther, is so pleased with her that he shows her kindness, oh, preferential treatment, uh, gives her the very best that he can. But notice verse 10, key passage. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred. So nobody knows, at least not in the palace, that she's Jewish. For Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Now, Esther obviously is humble enough to take someone else's advice. And perhaps she realizes, as Mordecai did, obviously, that there's a time and a place for everything. And this is not the time and place to let your Jewish light so shine before men. Uh, this is a touchy situation. And we are foreigners here. Now, there doesn't seem to be any overt animosity yet. There will be plenty, but there's going to be some, some details, some hints dropped throughout the narrative that the people of Shushan seem not to have a, a lot of animosity against the Jews. Then again, it might be just under the surface. It might be microaggressions, like forcing you to change your name and so on. Subtle slights against your Jewish identity. But... Esther is going to learn and teach us, hopefully, so that we can learn that there is a time to, to shine and there's a time to hold back. There's a time to speak up and a time to remain silent. There's a time to come in with missionary guns blazing. And there's a time to simply honor the perspectives and experiences of other people and not to be bold to the point of being overbearing. It makes me wonder if her Judaism was just enough to have prejudiced people against her. Uh, would Haggai have given her that preferential treatment if there was any anti-Jewish prejudice within him? Would the king have even given her the time of day, even to have the possibility of her becoming queen? In some ways, the question is, what is the intended first impression? I mean, Mordecai's behind this. Esther is young, okay? Uh, but he's thinking this through and giving her his best counsel. Don't let them know who you really are. Uh, stick with Esther, Ishtar. Don't go with Hadassah. Don't let them know that you're Jewish at all. Because if there is any prejudice, in fact, think about the word prejudice. Pre means before. Judice is judicial. It's judgment. And so a prejudice is just a judgment that's made in advance of having any real information or experience with someone. I've prejudged you. And so I don't even need a first impression. I already have one. And so often that first impression can get in the way of reality. It could have blinded people to Esther's true 
oh, qualities, her true nature. I actually remember in the mission field meeting a couple that were Jehovah's Witnesses. Wonderful couple. Uh, I met a lot of wonderful Jehovah's Witnesses on my mission. Uh, we could learn a few things from them as far as their membership zeal uh, to go share their, the gospel as they know it. I don't, I don't know if my ward's ever gone and tracked in a neighborhood, but I knew some Jehovah's Witnesses congregations that did that. Well, we went to teach them and uh, asked, you know, they, I mean, they were willing. You want to talk Bible? Let's talk Bible. It's like, oh, great. Well, let's, yeah, we can talk Bible and then a few other things. And they said, well, just as long as it's Bible and Bible only, then yes, we can have a conversation. I thought, oh, well, that's only going to last a couple of minutes in the first discussion before we get to additional scripture. How's this going to work? I said, well, we're going to need some divine help. So do you mind if we, if we uh, sing a hymn to invite the Spirit? They said, nope, absolutely not. No hymns. We're like, really? Wow. Um, I mean, the, there, there were Psalms in the Old Testament. That's scripture. Like, nope, we don't want just, let's just talk Bible. I'm like, okay, well, can we just start with a prayer? They're like, nope. I'm like, what? They prayed all the time in the scriptures, in the Bible. What are you talking about? They said, no, because you'll probably say, th- if you pray, you'll say things we can't agree with, and then we won't say amen. It'll hurt your feelings. Uh, and if we pray, then you'll surely not say amen, and that'll hurt ours. Like, wow, okay, I guess the amen you take seriously. Um, I was starting to have this sinking suspicion. This discussion is not going to get anywhere. Uh, If they won't even let us sing and pray and and take any step away from biblical text, then how this discussion is doomed before it begins. And so I kind of winked at my companion and said, just follow my lead. And I taught that first discussion unlike I'd ever taught it before. Because when it got to the part about the Book of Mormon, I told the story of the Book of Mormon without ever mentioning its name. In fact, I started with the Dead Sea Scrolls and was just like, you know, the Bible really is amazing, isn't it? Like, oh yeah, I mean, Bible, Bible, yes, a Bible. Uh, I said, isn't it interesting that sometimes things can be discovered archaeologically that help confirm the Bible? Like, oh, is that what the Dead Sea Scrolls did? I'm like, yeah, it's amazing. Helps us see that our that the biblical sources really are trustworthy. It's an amazing discovery. Uh, and they're like, oh, oh in, that, in that case, yes, wonderful. If it's biblical, oh, yeah, yeah, it's biblical, all right. Uh, but speaking of archaeological discoveries that help confirm and clarify the Bible, now you Latter-day Saints, you know where I'm going with this, right? Uh, I started talking about this archaeological discovery in upstate New York that helped confirm the reality of the Bible. And they were stoked. They were just like, really? That's amazing. I'm like, oh yeah, the, the doctrine it teaches confirms the doctrine that we find in the Bible. I mean, to the point that biblical truth is so important that the world needs to know it, not just the old world, but even the new. Well, they were enthralled by this. And I'm explaining this book, whatever it is, that backs up the Bible so beautifully. Uh, and then I said, you know, I, I actually, I, they, it was translated into English first, but it's been translated into Spanish too, so that you here in Puerto Rico can read it as well. And they're like, really? Another book that confirms the Bible? I'm like, yeah, I've got one in my backpack. And they're like, and so I reached in and started pulling it out. I said, yeah, it's an amazing book to help confirm the Bible. And it's called, ta-da, the Book of Mormon. And immediately they were like, no, no, put that book away. And I just thought to myself, talk about pre-judging. Talk about prejudice. You thought you knew what the Book of Mormon was. You didn't. You just assumed it was something that would go against everything that you believe in the Bible. And yet when I explained what it really was and what it really does, you were ready to dive in and study. But no, the name, the, it's the label 
scared you off? It was actually fascinating because this couple, the wife particularly, was like, okay, okay, we don't want to hear another word about your book. Uh, but that was pretty sly. <laughs> and I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, the way you did that, uh, that, that impressive. It was like she was giving me feedback on my missionary approach, which makes sense for a Jehovah's Witness since they have a missionary approach that they, that they work on as well. Uh, but then she said, okay, I could see that kind of interesting people here in Puerto Rico, since a lot of people have native ancestry. And so the Native Americans and that, that story you told that you say is from the Book of Mormon. Okay, fine. Um, how would you teach that message back in the United States, though? I don't know if people in your, where you, you're from care as much about Native American origins as we might. And so if that approach wouldn't work, how would you try to share your message? And I was like, oh, that, that's a great question. Hmm, how would I? Well, you know, one interesting thing about where I come from is there's so many churches out there, it's really hard to know which one's true. In fact, it reminds me of this friend of mine that had that exact question. You see where I'm going? And I told the, Joseph, the whole Joseph Smith story without ever mentioning his name. And I talked about the first vision and she was enthralled by this. Like, this is incredible. I'm like, yeah, visions just like you see in, in, in the Bible, right? Paul on the road, or Saul on the road to Damascus. Amazing. And he came to know the, the direction that he should follow in life. And like, wow, that is so miraculous. I'm like, yeah. And his name was Joseph Smith. And all of a sudden, again, she's like, ah, oh, you did it again! You did it again! And I, we just laughed together uh, as she, she pushed back and said, no, no, no. And I realized, come on, it's the name. It's your prejudice. When you didn't know I was talking about Joseph Smith, you were totally open to his story. But the moment the name came up, it triggered your prejudgment. And what was a positive first impression was swept aside because you already had an impression that came before the first one. Well, the same thing is, is possible here. And, and I am impressed with the wisdom of Mordecai. Don't let any prejudgments get in the way of them coming to know you for who you really are. So tell your story before you give your real name. Help them see you before they see something that might trick them into thinking that they already know who you are or what you're like. Well, Esther follows Mordecai's advice, and Mordecai remains as close to her as he possibly can, even through this time period in the palace. In verse 11, Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. This father figure is vigilant, he's concerned, He's doing the best he can at maintaining his role as a provider and protector, uh, even from a distance when he can't do it as directly as he was used to. Well, in verse 12, Now when every maid's turn was come to go in to King Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months, according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women, the next verse even says, whatsoever she desired to prepare herself with. I mean, you want to talk about going over the top. Uh, and maybe this is another indicator of the self-centeredness uh, and hedonism and sensuality of Ahasuerus that, oh, I don't even want to see him or smell him until they've had 12 months. 
Oh, to get their filthiness away from them. Uh, let them be purified completely so that they can be worthy to be in my mighty presence. Now again, I think this is meant to help set the stage for the time that she comes before him in the middle of the drama. Uh, if coming before him the first time took 12 months to prepare, then no wonder they were trying to squeeze in some preparation into three days of fasting and prayer. Uh, but also flip it around a little bit and let's take it from a different angle. If we were to consider Ahasuerus as a king and think about what kind of preparation goes into approaching a king. Now let's capitalize K and let's talk about the king of kings and just imagine what, what kinds of purifications and preparations should we go through so that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. So that we can approach him, confident that he will allow us to stay. I do love that what's specifically mentioned there is myrrh and sweet odors. And whatever else you're going to need. Myrrh, if you think about gold, frankincense, and myrrh, was a, a symbol of sacrifice. King and God and sacrifice is the symbolism behind the gifts of the wise men to the baby Jesus. In this case, what are we using, giving, offering as we prepare ourselves to come before the King of Kings? Are we making sacrifice of self? Do we recognize the sacrifice He made on our behalf so that we could be purified and prepared to enter His presence? Same with the sweet odors. If you think about the last thing you pass before you cross the veil to enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple, in those days that was the incense altar. And so sweet odors ascending to heaven, symbolizing the prayers of the saints. How do we approach the throne of God? We do it through prayer. We do it by preparing every needful thing so that we can feel worthy in his divine presence. Well, back to the actual narrative. In verse 15, Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, by the way, Abihail means, we don't know anything about him, but his name means father of strength, which either means he was a strong father or he was the father of strength personified. And sure enough, Esther was exactly that. Anyway, when she was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And yet despite that, not going above and beyond or over the top in any way, Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So her Midas touch continues. And everyone who sees her is amazed by the person that she is. Despite the fact that she's, she hasn't had all of the over-the-top kind of oh, beautification pro process that the other women had gone through. I mean, this is your one chance to win the marriage lottery, so to speak, and become the queen of the mighty Persian Empire. Imagine the lengths to which most women would go, and yet not Esther. No, simple, basic, whatever the minimum is that you have to... And why, why not go to those lengths? Because I know who I am. And I don't need to pretend to be something that I'm not. I'm not going to give the king an excuse to be caught up with oh, shallow surface level appearances. I want him to come to know the real me. And if that's not what he wants, then, then I don't want to be something different. So here I am. Take it or leave it, King Ahasuerus. 
Well, verse 16, Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal. And the king loved Esther above all the women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now that's the last we'll hear of Vashti in this book. But I have to believe that Vashti would have been impressed with Esther as well. Oh, you don't seem to be so caught up in <laughs> uh, trophy wife status either. And so I'm, I'm content to step aside to make way for you. And grace and favor and love. Those are all things that our King of Kings will feel for us as we approach him in worthiness and in readiness. The king then makes a great celebration. The text calls it Esther's feast. But verse 20, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people, as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with him. Despite the fact she's arrived and now far uh, surpasses Mordecai as far as her own power and position is concerned. Oh no, she still maintains her childlike submissiveness. And if you think that's the best advice for me, Mordecai, then I'll, I'll follow it. And it's a good thing. Mordecai has, is a man of incredible wisdom. And it's that wisdom that will preserve Esther. In fact, it's that, it's that same Mordecai that will end up preserving Ahasuerus. Because by the time chapter 2 ends, Mordecai, who always seems to be hanging by the, out by the palace to, to see and try to get any glimpse of he, that he can of how is Esther doing inside... He happens to be the right place at the right time to overhear a couple of the king's servants plotting his execution. A conspiracy is in the making, and Mordecai overhears it, alerts Esther, who then alerts Ahasuerus. Uh, they expose the plot, they have the men executed, and, and that definitely puts Esther and Mordecai on the king's good side. That's going to be important later on. Now, chapter 3 begins, and we get to meet the, our, the next character. Again, literarily, this is beautiful. It's just each, you give some time with each character and develop them so that you come to understand what they, what they represent. Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Now, that is kind of a stark introduction. We don't have any backstory. We just, the first time we meet Haman, it's in the process of him being promoted. Oh, okay. Well, then literarily, I understand what the, our narrative is doing. That's the context you need to associate with Haman. He's all about climbing the ladder. You're the first moment, even before you get his name, you get his promotion. And we'll see as the story unfolds, a lot of it is self-promotion on Haman's part. But notice the other detail, he is an Agagite, and that's why we needed to remember the fact that, that Mordecai came from the tribe of Benjamin. That if Mordecai becomes Saul 2.0, then Haman becomes Agag 2.0. Because remember that story in the book of Samuel when the, the Israelites were fighting the Amalekites, and it was supposed to be a war of absolute annihilation. Capital crimes with capital punishments, and we don't want any negative influences. We don't want inter, any, any intermarrying or intermingling. It'll only bring you down, not them up. And so it was supposed to be a complete annihilation. And yet Saul had spared the king of the Amalekites, a man named Agag. 
So there was some misplaced mercy on, on Saul's part, and it ended up causing problems later on. If you remember, Samuel came in and had to take care of justice right there on the spot himself. Well, in this aftermath, as centuries have passed, it's just interesting that you have someone possibly connected to Saul with someone connected to Agag. And we're going to see how the story does finally come to its close. But keep reading. Verse 2, all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. This is another key moment in the, the development of the plot. First thing you knew about Haman, promotion. Second verse about Haman, oh, respect and adoration from the lowly people beneath him. Now that was supposed to include Mordecai. But Mordecai doesn't do that. He doesn't go there. After all, the very first commandment of the ten was to have no other gods before the God of Israel. And that would include the, the merely mortal kind. I'm not going to bow before you, Haman. You're dust of the earth just like I am. In verse 3, Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. Interesting that Mordecai had counseled Esther, keep those cards close to the vest. Don't let anyone know your religious identity. But as far as he was concerned, oh, they're going to know. I'm going to make sure everyone understands that I'm Jewish, and as a result, I bow before the God of Israel and not before any mere mortal. I will not reverence you, Haman. No matter how many times your servants come around and ask why I'm transgressing the king's commandment. Well, capitalize the K, and I'm not transgressing the king's commandment. I'm honoring it. Because I will honor the king of kings far more than a mere king of Persia. I will only bow before my God. And even though you speak daily unto me, as you try to wear me down, it won't work. I will stand firm here. I'm so grateful that it was that kind of personality that raised Esther, because we'll see a similar personality in her once it's time for her to divulge her true religious identity. In verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, now you can only imagine how Haman's going to react. Haman was full of wrath. Oh, pride can't stand any objections, even from a nobody like, like Mordecai. But Haman thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. We've already seen one example of blowing something completely out of proportion. Uh, in the case of Vashti, well, now it's happening again. And if Mordecai would stand up to me instead of bowing down before me, then I assume the rest of his people would do the same. Now, sadly, that probably wasn't the case. Uh, there were plenty of other Jews in Persia that probably went with the flow and just, I'm not going to ruffle feathers or rock the boat, and I'm just going to kind of keep my head down or take the new name they give me and and kind of Oh, put down my religious identity in hopes of ha having any identity at all to be able to survive with. But not Mordecai. But as far as Haman was concerned, you're all Mordecais. 
This is just one monolithic Judaism. And you meet one, you know them all. And if this is the way that a, that a Jew might be, then the, that's the last thing I want. So let's get rid of every single one of them. Talk about guilt by association. Talk, by, talk about jumping to conclusions and making one individual the personification of an entire people and a personal slight now becomes a national danger. There's actually a fascinating story in the, the life of Elder Richard G. Scott of the Quorum of the Twelve. When he was young, he was a nuclear engineer. And he helped develop the nuclear navy for the United States. Uh, this was in the midst of the Cold War and, and both Russia and the United States racing forward to try to create the technology to allow this to take place. And Richard G. Scott was in the forefront of it all until he was called by David O. McKay to go be a mission president in South America. And so he told the admiral at the time was a man named Hyman Rickover, who was scary. Now, he was famous for being just no nonsense and in your face and get things done. I mean, kind of stereotypical military man. And when he found out that Richard G. Scott was leaving the Navy for three years, he was furious. He called uh, Brother Scott in and sat him down and said, nope, you're not allowed to leave. You cannot leave the Navy. And Brother Scott was like, uh, I, I'll come right back after three years. I was, I was like, well, why is it that you're doing this? And he's trying to explain, well, I was called by the president of my church. And it's like, wait, this is a religious thing? What are you talking about? Uh, well, I'm a Latter-day Saint. And he's trying to explain this. I mean, Rickover, Admiral Rickover was so angry. He was demanding, like, get David O. McKay on the phone. And I'm going to chew out your so-called prophet. It, it got worse. It got to the point where he was going to say, if this is what Mormons do, then get them all out of the Navy. You see the parallel here? If you are... He, he accused Richard G. Scott of, of, of treason. This... You are a traitor to your country if you leave. You are irreplaceable here. And without you working toward this goal, then the Russians are going to get there first and put the United States in danger. You cannot leave. And yet Richard G. Scott knew he'd been called of God. But he did worry. He did worry about other Latter-day Saints. When he took that threat seriously from Admiral Rickover realizing that there's a lot of Latter-day Saints that serve in the Navy. And if, if this somehow colors the Admiral against them and, and makes him think that we're disloyal or un unpatriotic and he drives them all out of the Navy, then or that's going to affect families negatively. What do I do? Well, as he pondered that question, the words of a hymn popped into his head. Do what is right. Let the consequence follow. And so he did. Rickover was still so mad at him that he wouldn't even talk to him personally or directly. There was, always had to be a go-between. And then, as, but, but young brother Scott did everything he could to train a replacement, get everything set so that it would be okay. And then shortly before he left the Navy to begin his service as a mission president, he called the Admiral's secretary and said, I'd like to see the Admiral. And the secretary said, uh, he doesn't want to see you. He said, well, tell him I'm coming anyway. And he tucked a copy of the Book of Mormon under his arm and walked to the Admiral's office, humming to himself, do what is right, let the consequence follow. 
And he came into the Admiral's office and sat down and said, uh, Admiral, I know you're angry about me leaving. I need you to understand why I'm doing it. It has to do with this book. <laughs> he gives him the Book of Mormon. And bears his testimony of the work of the Lord and why he needed to, to accept the Lord's call. Well, by the end of the conversation, not only did Admiral Rickover promise, I, I'll read your book, Scott, but he also said, when you get back with it from this mission thing, come see me and your job will be waiting for you. Talk about a 180. Talk about a change of perspective, all because of Richard G. Scott's conviction and strength and courage. He did what was right and then let the consequence follow. And the consequences were far better than he imagined. Come to think of it, I don't know if there's a better story to help illustrate the story of Esther. Uh, by the way, that was not some 70-year-old apostle that had the courage to do that. That was a 37-year-old stake clerk. Oh, but the kind of person that would become an amazing apostle when the, when the time came. Well, in Mordecai's uh, instance, in Esther's instance, it's no different. And despite an enemy in Haman that will make a people, oh, that will make one man an offender for an act and then take out his anger on all of that person's people, Mordecai still won't budge. In verse 7, what's Haman going to do about it? In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur. That's where Purim comes. Here it says that is the lot. And so if a Pur is a lot, it's like throwing dice or, or pulling the long straw. It's just some way of trying to involve providence. He's going to cast a lot, a Pur, or lots, Purim. And what he's casting lots about is a date. It says he cast the lot before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is, the month Adar. Now, what he's trying to do is involve his gods in some way. Uh, just chance, fate, uh, luck would have it, but the, the providence is what we're really picturing here. Uh, God will, my God, the Persian God, Ishtar, or better yet, Marduk, will tell me through the casting of lots how Mar Marduk will take out Mordecai and all of his people. And so I just need to know the D-Day, the, the date that would be best used to accomplish my evil purposes. A day that I will plan on destroying the Jewish people as a whole. Well, the lot falls upon a date. He goes to the king and presents his plan. In verse 8, he says to him, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. Now notice that Haman does not specifically identify who these certain people are. Oh, I don't want to say it. Uh, because if you're not sufficiently prejudiced against them, if you don't have a, a pre-judgment that's negative, then wow, this could backfire on me. And so I'm just going to present... It's like what I did with this Jehovah's Witness couple, just <laughs> reverse it. Uh, I'm not going to say that these are Jews. They're just a certain people. They could be anyone. They're just out there among us, and they're scattered throughout the whole kingdom. So you should be nervous, king. I've got to get you up in arms. I've got you to, I've got to get you to, to, you to turn against them. And so what does he say as he describes them? Their laws are diverse from all people. 
These people are different. Neither keep they the king's laws. They're rule breakers. They're not loyal to you. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. It does you no good to keep you around. There's no profit in them. So, if it please the king, let it be written with one of those laws that is irrevocable, that they may be destroyed. Remember last week when we were studying Ezra and Nehemiah, and the Samaritans and others came up with all these false accusations and sent them back to the, the rulers there in Persia to try to get them up in arms against the Israelites, the Jews, saying, oh, Jerusalem is a rebellious city. It's a bad city. Oh, read your history, and it'll all go against them. Haman is aiming for similar goals here. They're different. They won't keep the law. They won't help in any way. They just ought to be destroyed. But again, he wouldn't say who they were. He wouldn't say that it's the Jews. And I wonder, is he afraid that the Jews don't have that negative reputation? And that would alert the king like, wait, what? The Jews? They've been loyal citizens for a long time. I mean, Cyrus the Great let them go home and not all of them did. Some of them just wanted to stay here with us. And it's been fine for generations. Well, Haman then adds in verse 9, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. So if he had just said that it's not for the king's profit to let them live, well, let's turn that around. And it could be for the king's profit to slay them. In fact, I'll make an investment towards that. How's that? Because I'm sure that it will be there'll be a hefty return on my investment. I'll put down... All of this silver, 10,000 talents, which again suggests just how many promotions Haman must have have had uh, to this point. But if we pay people to destroy the Jews, then they're they're, they're more valuable to us dead than alive. Alive, they profit us not at all. But dead, we can, we can take the spoils of war. And everything that belong, that used to belong to the Jews can now belong to us Persians. Yeah, 10,000 talents of silver seems like a drop in the bucket compared to what we could amass from a massacre of the Jews. Well, all of this is sufficiently convincing to the king, sadly. So he gives Haman his ring, this seal of approval, kind of a power of attorney. And he says to him in verse 11, The silver is given to thee, I'll even pay for it, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Whoever it is, and whatever you need to do, just go ahead and do it. Talk about an ill-advised, ill-informed decision. But here's one man guilty of unrighteous dominion, giving a blank check to another man who is guilty of unrighteous dominion. These are peas in a pod. Well, Haman has this decree sent out over the king's signature and over his seal that he had with the, the king's ring. He sends it out across the entire Persian Empire, wants to make sure all 127 provinces get the news. He has it translated into all the languages of the realm, verse 13, to destroy, to kill, to cause to perish. Am I closing off any potential loopholes? I mean, take whatever synonym you want. Let's just get rid of them. And who? Now let me be as crystal clear as possible. Destroy, kill, and cause to perish all Jews both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Dar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. I guess that's where the lot fell. 
on that particular unlucky 13th. The Purim will be a day of destruction for the Jews. This is a call to straight up genocide. And in one day, we can completely wipe out the Jewish nation. Go ahead and do it by any means necessary. You have royal permission. In fact, this is your royal command. We thought the extermination order was bad in Missouri, and it was. That by whatever means necessary, the Mormons must be driven by, from the state or exterminated if necessary. Because they're diverse people scattered among us. They keep their own laws. They're different from the surrounding culture. It's no profit to suffer them. These are rebellious and bad people and must be eliminated. Well, that was the case with the Jews. Or so Haman wanted the people to believe. Well, the decree went out across the empire, was posted there in the capital city of Shushan as well. But interesting detail as the chapter ends, verse 15. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink. There always seems to be wine nearby. But the city Shushan was perplexed, which is fascinating to me. When they got the news, they're scratching their heads going, wait, what? The Jews? Why would we fight them? Why would we take the, their spoil? They deserve to live. They've been no, there's been no problem with them here. That again suggests that the, the people of Israel have been no problem. It's been several generations since they've been living among us here in Persia. And it's, I'm just confused why all of a sudden their persona non grata, that their public enemy number one, why would that be the case? Well, the people of Persia may be perplexed. The people of Israel are absolutely devastated. The extermination order is upon us. This is Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s. This is anti-Semitism at its absolute worst. And the thought that the entire house of Israel could be completely wiped out in one 24-hour period. I mean, yes, the Jews have been scattered, uh, the lost tribes. But if the Persian Empire is as far as, as they can imagine with these 127 provinces, there is a very real possibility that the house of Israel will be completely snuffed out not even a remnant remaining. So what are we to do? We're to turn a page and in chapter 4 see the incredible courage of Hadassah, the myrtle tree of Israel. In verse 1, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, he rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry. Now, these are the telltale signs of mourning, and obviously he's going to be in mourning. My entire people is about to be annihilated, and wh what would you have me do? No wonder there's sackcloth and torn clothing and ashes and weeping and crying, which makes that first verb all the more surprising. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, perceived. Well, you don't need perception here. This is as obvious as it gets. And so what's with the perception? It makes me wonder, is he perceiving the role he personally played in it? 
again, Shushan is perplexed. He's going to be perplexed. He's absolutely devastated. But then perceptively, he realizes, is this because I refused to bow? Is this Haman behind all of this? I know it's got the king's seal and signature, but there's got to be a different finger in the ring. This has Haman written all over it. And, oh, no. Was I wrong to stand up to him? literally and metaphorically, was should I have just bowed? Should I have denied my Jewishness the way I told Esther to do it? Have I endangered everyone? Now, this is going to be a gut check for Mordecai. And what will I do moving forward? Well, in verse 3, in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews. Again, obviously and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Again, all of the signs of mourning, but among them one stands out. Weeping, wailing, mourning, sackcloth, ashes. But what about fasting? Now fasting, yes, can be a sign of mourning. This thought of of being sickened by one's circumstance, having lost one's appetite, I'm so devastated, I I can't even eat. But we also know that fasting is a sign of worship. That fasting goes hand in hand with prayer. I told you God would be present in this book, even though his name isn't mentioned. Who are they weeping to? Who are they crying out for? For whose sake are they fasting? For their own, but they are fasting so that God will see that this is so much a matter of life and death that I will take the bread of life and keep it from from me because I need something better. I need something that can only come from God, and that is deliverance. Now, Esther hears about this. She is exceedingly grieved, along with everyone else. She finds out that Mordecai is there in sackcloth and ashes, and so she sends clothing out to him. But he won't take it. So she sends a servant to find out from Mordecai what's going on. I love the phrase in verse 5. She wanted to know what it was and why it was. And those are perfect questions to ask. Not only what's happening, but what's behind what's happening. Why is this occurring? In our day, yes, look around and see what's going on and try to make sense of that. But think harder and dig deeper. And I think we'll be able to find some of the reasons why society is going this way or why people seem to be leaving organized religion. Ask the what, yes, but also just try to discover the why. Well, Mordecai explains everything. He tells this servant in verse 8 to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. Because that's us. Yes, you are Jewish. And you know that and I know that, but the king doesn't. And if he realizes that, the, that included in this general decree is a death sentence upon his own beloved queen, then perhaps that will jolt him into a recognition of what he's doing and, and somehow can put a stop to this. Now, there's irony here. This is the absolute most dangerous time to be Jewish. And what's Mordecai asking Esther, Esther to do? To go back to Hadassah. 
to reveal that you are a Jew, that the target is on your back. Now Esther realizes this and is concerned in more ways than one. She sends a message back to Mordecai in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know. So this is common knowledge for everyone that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I, I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. Mordecai, do you have any idea what you're asking me to do? Everyone knows that going before the king is a death sentence. And so to go and try to plead against the death sentence on my people would be a death sentence on me. There's no getting around this. I mean, yes, there is an exception. The exception is him holding out the golden scepter. But the rule is that he doesn't do it. The rule is as soon as somebody comes in uninvited, he is the center of attention. And he doesn't want anyone around him that he doesn't trust, that he doesn't know, that he doesn't want there. And so the king calls the shots. He called it with Vashti. If he wants you to come, you come. And if he doesn't want you to come, you don't come. And there's no wiggle room here. I can't do this. It's been a month since he's wanted to be with me in any way. I mean, he's got a whole harem and he put Vashti away. Has he put me away just by neglect? Am I queen? Am I just another woman in the harem? I don't know how he sees me. I don't know if he'll see me. I don't know what to do. And to dramatize what's going on with all the background we've already seen, the objectification of women, the self-centered pride, the, the, the anger that anyone would oppose him in any way, this is an impossible task that Mordecai has given her. But Mordecai understands the impossible situation he's in, and she's in, and that all the Jews are in. And so in some of the most moving lines in all Scripture, notice what Mordecai says in verse 13 and 14. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house, more than all the Jews. Oh, Esther, my dear, my sweet Hadassah, you are no more safe than the rest of us. Oh, you might feel... <laughs> isolated or insulated from the dangers and perils of your people, but you're not. Someday, somehow, you'll be discovered. They will come to know who you are, and if there is an extermination order on all Jews, then it's only a matter of time that you will lose your head, just like the rest of us. So please don't think there are places you can hide who you really are. Those years of inactivity on my wife's part when she went off away from home and away from people who knew her and went to a, a party school in Northern California for college and was just living the life of a non-member. It was interesting. She shared a story that uh, one of her roommates had met LDS missionaries. And she came home and asked my wife, Hey, aren't, weren't you Mormon at some time? I met some Mormon missionaries and they seem to have some, I don't know, I'm just... I'm curious. I'd, I would like to know a little bit more. I don't know if I want to meet with them, though, but anything you can tell me about your church? 
And my wife was devastated because she knew she was in no position to talk about it. She didn't feel worthy to be able to even describe what the church was about. I think down deep she knew what it was and what it meant to her. And I, I can't go there. I just can't go there. And I, I get the sense from Mordecai to Esther, there's no safe place to hide who you really are because down deep you know. You know your Jewish identity. As soon as they know it, you're, you're a goner just like the rest of us. So he continues, verse 14. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Now pause there. What's he saying? That's a fascinating passage. Deliverance will come from some other place. If you know anything about our history, and we've been studying a lot of it for the last few months, the Jews are a people who take a licking and keep on ticking. That they can be scattered to the winds by the Assyrian Empire, and yet there will be a remnant that remains. That they can be carried off captive into Babylon, and yet a remnant shall return. Oh, he didn't fear that it would be absolute annihilation, because he knew God had promised this remnant. He knew that Oh, the seed of David would remain upon a throne at some, somehow, some way. He knew that God would preserve his people. But it wouldn't be Esther's immediate people. It wouldn't be Mordecai's immediate people. We will die in this edict. Perhaps God will gather Israel from the scattered remnants. But, but we're goners. If you don't do something... Basically, there will be a good long-term result because God's in charge. But there will be a fatal short-term consequence if you don't do something, Esther. You're in a place and in a position to make a difference, and so you've got to make that difference. I know you have great anxiety. We all do. But you must exercise great faith and move forward. That's the phrase that Jacob uses so powerfully in Jacob chapter 1 verse 5. Because of faith and great anxiety, and boy did he have both. The anxiety to realize that he had to do something, and the faith that God would enable him to do it. That's what Mordecai is urging upon Esther, and even using maternal imagery to do it. Oh, this is a gendered book all the way through. Notice he said that enlargement and deliverance will arise to the Jews from some other place. God will deliver us. He will enlarge us. Now, there's other ways that that could be translated, that phrase. Other translations speak of relief and deliverance. Or some simply say liberation and rescue. But I am grateful and impressed that the King James translators chose words like enlargement and deliverance. I don't know if it was intentionally meant to evoke maternal imagery, but it does in my mind. Enlargement and deliverance. Esther, in this gendered story, our deliverance will come. You've already been enlarged and elevated. You are oh, pregnant with potential to make a life-saving difference in the world. You can be a mother in Israel. There's no sense of motherhood in this story. 
uh, we don't see what, what com becomes of Esther as she continues as queen. Uh, well, there's no mention of posterity and so on. But I do wonder if the King James translators are helping us think in that direction by using these particular terms. Esther, you can be a mother in Israel and you can give birth in a manner of speaking to a protected and preserved people. We're counting on you, at least be our midwife and deliver us from the stillborn death that will occur on that 13th day if you don't do something about it. Then this all-important phrase at the end of verse 14, Mordecai says to her, And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, your whole life is starting to make sense to me now. Of having lost mother and father and raised by me, uh, raised by a courageous old man that just refused to bow or bend before the pressures of the world. That's in you. And the fact that you would be blessed with not, not only the inner strength that is required in such a moment, but also the outward beauty that drew, drew the attention of King Ahasuerus to you to begin with. The Midas touch that has allowed you to enlarge and elevate from the moment that a, a chamberlain or a eunuch laid eyes on you. You are the one, you're our one hope. Because you're the one person in the one place that can make the necessary difference. You are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Actually, he didn't say you are. He said, who knoweth whether thou art? And to me, that's even better. Because it leaves it in God's hands. Who knows? May, I don't know where the deliverance is going to come from, the enlargement. I know it'll come from some, well, I know it'll come from God. But what mortal instrument will he use? Who knows if it's not you? Everything seems to be pointing in that direction in terms of the position that you, that you occupy. Oh, and the person that you are, Esther, live up to that potential. Play the part. My friends, there is so much that the Lord wants to say to each of us. If we'll simply pose the question to him, have I been sent to the kingdom for such a time as this? And if so, why? And how? There's the what's and the why's we saw earlier. What would you have me do? Why would you have me do it? What have you made of me? Why did you send me here now? Why this particular time and place? And what kind of difference can I make here? That could apply to the church calling that you presently occupy. It could apply to the, the geographic space that you find yourself living in. And why you moved to one place and not another. Why you were born in one part of the world and not somewhere else. It could be your personal Education, your personality traits, your spiritual gifts, your skill sets, what you've developed. It could be your education or your profession, personality, you name it. But ask God the question, what would you have me do in this place, at this time? If you think about Doctrine and Covenants 138, that magnificent capstone section of the Doctrine and Covenants, that we received our first lessons in the world of the spirits 
to prepare us to come forth to build the kingdom in such a time as this. What is your personal purpose? What's your personal identity? There's the rebuilding of the temple and the walls we saw last week with Ezra and Nehemiah. And now that you're rebuilt in this place at this time, what is it that God wants you to do about it? And if you're wondering, who knoweth whether I'm come, then turn to the Lord for clarification. It can come through the simple fact that, you were, that you're alive in this final dispensation. Oh, living among the noble and great, of, among whom you are one. Oh, to be part of the dispensation of the fullness of times meant to gather all things, to be alive at the time when President Nelson is calling us to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. Yes, we've come to a, the kingdom for such a time as this. If you're still wondering more specifically, check your patriarchal blessing. What clues does it give you? Think of priesthood blessings you've received. Think about personal inspiration and the promptings of the Holy Ghost. Think about church callings that you're currently serving in. There is there's so much here. And that phrase, I pray, is written on the fleshy tables of the heart. Joseph Smith came to the kingdom for such a time as his. Even non-Latter-day Saint historians have described the timing of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was providential. Oh, any earlier, and there wouldn't have been religious freedom for it to, uh, to even be born, enlargement and deliverance. Uh, any later, and the world was too skeptical to even allow for these kinds of miraculous things. Brigham Young, for such a time as his, you better believe it, an organizer, a systematizer. We wouldn't have survived the aftermath of the martyrdom without a personality, with all of its strengths and all of its associated weaknesses, if we didn't have Brigham. Oh, to think of a, a Heber J. Grant, someone with so much economic know-how, for him to be president of the church, to guide the church through the Great Depression, he was sent to the kingdom for such a time as his. David O. McKay, at the dawn of a worldwide church, he was perfect for that position. Fast forward, you get a, oh, a, a Gordon B. Hinckley in an internet age, leading the church out of obscurity and out of darkness through his incredible personality and media savvy. To see a President Nelson not just a doctor to lead the church through the pandemic, although I think that's an amazing non-coincidence, but also someone who spent a lifetime making really important life and death decisions without having the luxury of waiting forever to know absolutely what he was supposed to do. I mean, when you're a surgeon, it's, we have to act. We have to do something or we'll lose the patient just from inact inactivity or inaction, indecision. No wonder he's able to make so many decisions and, necess and change necessary changes and, and just affect the kingdom as the president of the church. Oh, he has come to the kingdom for such a time as this. But my point to you, my friends, is that so have you and so have I. And for us to understand that and to embrace it 
Oh, then I hope our <laughs> great anxiety and our faith come together in such a way that we will act and act boldly. In verse 16, Esther sends an answer back to Mordecai. Okay, I get it. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me. Again, we're going to turn to God here. Neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. Let's show God that this is a matter of life and death for us. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. So I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. Oh, the three days of fasting is nothing. My moment of walking into his presence will be a moment of life and death. But then her words of resignation, her words of faith, and if I perish, I perish. I don't know of more stirring words of faith, of submission, of acceptance of the divine will. I mean, we'll see the male equivalent when we get to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they say in the, of the fiery furnace, I know our God can spare us. If it be so, is the phrase. If it be so, our God can save us from the fiery furnace. But if not, we're still not going to bow to your gods of gold. It's that but if not that we see here in, in Esther's words. Let's fast. Let's seek divine help and divine strength. Because if it be so, then God can soften the king's heart. And I can be an exception rather than the rule. He can extend the golden scepter and I can live and you all can live. We all can live. I have faith in that, if it be so. But if not, then I will admit my Jewishness. I will claim my people and my God in hopes that God will claim each of us. And if the king will not listen, if he will not accept, if he will not make exception if he will not accept me into his presence and I die, then so be it. The courage of this young woman, this fragile little myrtle tree that wasn't so fragile after all. This is a seedling saint that is growing up in God and doing so with such magnificent strength. She's one, she's an example that we need to follow. Come what may. And if we perish, we perish. So verse 17, Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. It's her turn to be giving the orders now. Mordecai understands the gravity of their situation. He understands the gravity of her situation. They're all in this together. And they're ready to move forward. Chapter 5, we see the aftermath of this, this incredible call to personal strength. Right after this, if I perish, I perish. Right after this, I've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Right after this combination of faith and great anxiety, it's time for her to face the king. 
This was probably the longest three days of, of their lives as they are fasting and weeping and mourning and praying and worshiping and hoping against hope that they'll survive this. But the third day comes. And on the third day, what will we find? Life or death? In chapter 5, verse 1, Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel. She will look the part of a queen. She stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. She's in the middle of the lion's den, so to speak. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. Okay, Esther, you've entered the king's sacred space. Am I worthy to be here? There's all kinds of beautiful temple possibilities here to, to consider as we make application. As I come into this holy place, will the king be pleased to find me here? Am I worthy to stay? No 12 months of preparation this time. No uh, odors, sweet, sweet savors, no, no myrrh. But is she prepared sufficiently? to enter the presence of her king. In verse 2, And it was so, when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, and you can imagine her heart pounding in her chest, this sinking feeling in her stomach, this fear mingled with hope, she obtained favor in his sight. <laughs> she was going to make it. The king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Probably hoped that the king wouldn't notice how much her fingers were trembling as she stretched out her hand. This reminds me of Jacob going to meet Esau for the first time in 20 years and bowing seven times along the way and being so fearful that he was about to be annihilated. And yet, what, how does his brother react? What's, what's with all the gifts? What's with the fear, little brother? And throws his arms around him and weeps upon his neck and treats him as one, as, the, as an older brother of any prodigal should. And as our older brother, the older brother of all of us prodigals, surely will if we are humble and repentant. This, it's so understated there in verse 2, but this is the moment of Esther's personal deliverance. If I perish, I perish. I didn't perish. I got the exception, not the rule. I got the if it be so instead of the but if not. And God came through for me. And now I pray that I, with God's help, can help my people come through as well. In verse 3, the king says to her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? You come dressed as a queen. Oh, you look the part, my dear. What can I do for you? What is thy request? It shall be even given thee to the half of the kingdom. It's amazing how much she underestimated the king's feelings for her. And I would add, I'm sure we do the same when it comes to the king of kings. As we fearfully approach him, instead of coming boldly to the throne of grace, so afraid that he will reject us, 
And yet it's not just a golden scepter he's holding out. It's his arms of mercy that he's extending. Please come. I want to give you more than half the kingdom. I want to give you all that the Father hath and share in that glory together. Well, in Esther's case, she didn't take the king's generosity for granted. She says in verse 4, If it seem good unto the king, so I'm going to let you make the decision here. I'm not going to presume upon your grace or make any demands that I'm undeserving of. But if it seem good, then please let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Wait, that's it? You risked your life to come and invite me to a party? I mean, I'm, I am a fan of parties. The, the six-month one, it was pretty epic. But that's, what, that's all you wanted? And it's me as the guest of honor? and well, That's obvious, I'm the king. But you want Haman to come too? Again, this is where I think Mordecai's perception comes in handy. Since it was the king's signature and seal on that, on that decree. But no, Haman's behind it, so we have to get Haman in front of this, in front of the king, in front of Esther, so we can oh, confront him in terms of what he's done. Well, if that's all you want, then of, of course, that, that's easier than giving you half the kingdom. I'll come, and I'm, I'm sure that Haman will want to be there, since it's oh, another promotion of sorts. They both come to Esther's banquet, and again, the king asks Esther, as before, what, what do you want? Surely it's not just to throw a party for us. You, I'm offering to give, and instead you, you give in return? No, what, what can you receive? What do you want? And her humble request, verse 8, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition, and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. So again, equally strange. What do you want? I just want another party. Day two. I don't know if I'm going to keep this going for 180, but can we at least have a second day of feasting, of celebrating, of me honoring you and honoring Haman? It's interesting, again, to see the providence behind the scenes. Some things needed to happen on Haman's part and Mordecai's part before Esther exposed Haman for what he was and what he was doing. And so it needed to have another day for, a, uh, for day one of banquet. It needed to have another day for day two of the banqueting. So interesting to see this inspiration on the part of Esther to extend things. I also love the way she phrased it. If I've found favor in your sight, there's a sense of personal worthiness or readiness to receive the blessings. And secondly, if it pleased the king to grant my petition, there's an understanding that it's not all up to us and what's God's will in all this. I, I love, we're going to see this three times from Esther, this balancing of, am I worthy to receive the miracle I'm hoping for? And is it God's will that I receive it? Because if either of those things is missing, then perhaps I'll miss the miracle. Interesting that she combines the two. Well, verse 9 then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. Now, can you just imagine how gleeful he would be that all the attention's on him? I and I alone are in the inner circle of the king and queen. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. I mean, nothing worse than jealous pride getting in the way of selfish pride. 
I mean, it was the, the, the selfish pride that was making him feel so good about himself. Oh, me, I'm, I'm pers- number one in the king's eyes. But then it was jealous pride that <laughs> popped the bubble of his joy. That, oh, but there's Mordecai. And, oh, how can I rejoice in my superiority when he's not visibly admitting it? There's, it's, it's so interesting, so twisted, really, that someone so self-centered can't even rejoice in his own good fortunes if there's someone out there that isn't jealous of those good fortunes himself. I mean, C.S. Lewis wrote some amazing things about pride uh, that President Benson quoted in his incredible talk about pride, for example. And pride isn't satisfied in having something. It just wants to make sure he has more of it than someone else. And that is Haman to a T. And to be so indignant, to replace joy with, it's this weird envy This weird jealousy that that just can't allow anyone not to recognize all that I have. And how can this nobody uh, not recognize his nothingness in my presence? But what amazes me also is that Mordecai didn't change. To whatever degree he perceived that Haman was behind the decree. To whatever degree he perceived that it was his unwillingness to bow before Haman that may have brought on this wave of opposition, he didn't change. He would have said right alongside Esther, if I perish, I perish. I know God will preserve a righteous remnant somehow, and I'm, in the meantime, I'm going to be righteous myself, and I will not bow before him. In verse 10, though, let's get back to Haman. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself. He's not going to take out Mordecai quite yet. He's got it already planned for D-Day on the 13th. But when Haman came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches, the multitude of his children, all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Uh, I laugh at this degree of complete and utter self-absorption on Haman's part. I mean, if you're with your friends, do you really have to tell them about the glory of your riches all over again? They're they're aware. And if if you're with your wife, do you really have to brag about the multitude of your children? She knows who they are. (laughs) She knows who gave them to you. Oh, this incredible... Well, the second half, but you didn't know about that. And I just want to, you know, anytime I bring up new sources of pride, I just want to reiterate the old ones so you don't forget. Do you have any idea who I am? How how lucky you are to have me as your friend? How how incredibly blessed you are to be my wife? How to have me as your husband? Everyone's lucky to have me in their lives. Someday Mordecai will know it, maybe on his death day. Uh, the king knows it, he seems to. The queen knows it. I mean, she was inviting me and me alone to hang out with the royal family. And so I am rising higher and higher and higher in everyone's estimation. In verse 12, Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she had prepared, but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. 
Yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So there it happened again. Uh, and right in the midst of my prideful revelry, I thought of someone who doesn't realize my superiority. And that uh, pops my bubble. How can I ever be satisfied as long as someone out there doesn't realize how much lower than I am they are? Uh, his plan then, actually it wasn't even his plan. This is sick and twisted. It's his wife's plan. Verse 14. Then said Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends unto him. These are enablers, and like attracts like. Well, let a gallows be made of fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. This is a brutal verse. In Haman, we went from a, uh, a prideful glee, look how much better I am than everyone, down to this jealous devastation of, oh, but Mordecai, and then back to an even more wicked glee when his horrible wife suggests a 50-foot gallows to hang Mordecai from. And then you can go merrily back to the king, kind of skip away from the, from the scene of execution. By the way, other translations don't speak of a 50-cubit gallows to be hanged upon, but rather a 50-cubit spike to be impaled upon. I guess pick your poison. Uh, either way, 50 cubits is 75 feet tall, give or take. Uh, again, wanting to be seen, I want to be above, rise above everyone. Well, I want my enemy the one that I want to put so low, I actually want to bring him as high as possible so the world has something to look at. And he can be the cautionary tale to, to warn people against ever messing with me. Oh, you wouldn't bow down before me? Fine, I will raise you up in your own death. Oh, we already saw that Mordecai and Esther are a perfect match. Well, Haman and Zeresh seem to be a perfect match for each other as well. Chapter 6, though, we shift back to Mordecai. And notice what happens here. This is, the plot continues to thicken. Verse 1, On that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. I mean, nothing quite like reading history to someone to put them to sleep. Kind of like I've been doing to you for the last six months. <laughs> well, if you're still awake, uh, thank you for bearing with me. In the king's case, as he's listening to, you know, insomnia, listening to this history drone on, all of a sudden it gets to some current events and he realizes, wait a minute, I was saved by Mordecai the Jew? He was the one that alerted Queen Esther, who then told me about the plot that was being hatched among my own servants to, to conspire against me? Wow. In verse 3, he asks, uh, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. Oh, well, shame on me. Uh, I guess I was so relieved that I survived the, the assassination attempt that uh, I just kind of moved on with my life since I had one <laughs> and didn't realize that I owed that life to someone that I could have done something to honor. 
Yeah, let's let's write that wrong, shall we? I'm actually starting to kind of like King Ahasuerus. I wonder if Esther has been a good influence on him and he's starting to think about other people for a change. Well, he goes and asks his advisors, what, what kinds of things should we do to honor someone? Now, Haman happened to get there right as this question was, was, was raised. He actually had come with a question of his own. He was going to ask the king, hey, do you mind if I string up uh, Mordecai on a 75-foot gallows uh, or uh, impale him on a 75-foot spike? But he didn't get to his question before King Ahasuerus got to his. And who better to ask about worldly promotions than Haman, who always seems to be after more of them? Okay, verse 6, what shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Now, he's being vague. We've seen a lot of that vagueness. I'm just, there's this guy I want, this, this friend, quote-unquote, that I really want to honor. Uh, any idea, Haman, what would kind of go the distance? What would make the biggest difference for someone that I would want to honor? And as self-centered as always, Haman thought in his heart, well, to whom would the king delight to honor more than to myself? I mean, if, if there's anything good that's going to come to somebody, why not me? I'm obviously the most deserving of it. I mean, it's ironic that there are, there are some people in the world that anytime there is laughter, they automatically assume, uh-oh, they're laughing at me. That's the, the self-deprecating sort. But then there's another group of people out there that anytime anyone is cheering, they automatically assume it must be something, about, it must be something that I've done. And that's pride speaking. Well, here's pride personified, and he's thinking, oh, well, (laughs) you mean I get to uh, make my own wish list? The king obviously wants to honor me, and I can tell him exactly what will bring me the most honor. Fantastic. Now, just like with King Solomon, you could see a lot into his heart when when we see what he asked for. Well, now we get to see into Haman's heart, if he has one. Uh, to try to make sense of what matters most to him. Well, here it is, verse 7 through 9. His grand and glorious idea. First, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king useth to wear. And next, the horse that the king rideth upon. Next, the crown royal, which is set upon his head. And then let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man withal whom the king delighteth to honor. And bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Now think about that, and what it says about Haman. Again, let's go back to Solomon and use him as a a comparison. What did Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Why? So I'd be known as the wisest of all men. Well, he ended up being known for that, but that wasn't why he was asking for it. He had nobler, purer motives. I need wisdom to be able to guide and direct and judge my people. I need largeness of heart as the sands of the sea. Please help me be a good leader. See, it wasn't about him. It was about others. More used would I be, right? That's not Haman at all. It's all about himself. It's all about not more used would I be, but more known would I be, more honored would I be. And then remember what the Lord said to Solomon? He compared that righteous desire to some less righteous 
desires, some more selfish ones. And the three he listed was, wow, you didn't ask for riches. That's usually the first thing they ask for when they rub the genie, or rub the lamp and the genie comes out. Second, you didn't ask for, for long life for yourself. Hmm. And thirdly, you didn't ask for uh, your enemies to fall before you. Interesting. Well, I'm going to let you have all those three things because they'll be safe with you, Solomon. Uh, but good choice as far as number one was concerned. Compare that now to Haman. And part of me thinks, well, riches? Why didn't he ask for that? Well, he already had them. He's the one that's going to shell out 10,000 talents of silver as an investment on getting more of the Jewish spoil. Now, he's the one that goes home and brags to his friends and his wife about all the glory of his wealth. I don't need that. It'll come with my anti-Jewish investment anyway. Number two, long life. Well, if there's one thing that you know about self-centered, prideful people, it's that they feel invincible. So I don't need to ask for long life. I mean, who would ever think about allowing me to die? Oh, I don't know. I live forever. And third, the, the, uh, the lives of my enemies. <laughs> the king already promised me that. And as soon as D-Day comes on the, th on the unlucky 13th, all the Mordecais in the world will bow before me as I slaughter them. So what's left then? I've got everything. I, don't, I only need one more wish from the genie, and it's for the genie to come and turn me into a king. Or at least make people think that I am one. Because that's everything that he's asking for. I want the, the royal clothing. I want to dress like a king. I want the royal horse. I want to ride in to, through town like a king. I want the royal crown. I, in fact, I want one of the king's most noble princes. Get the best you can think of and then still put him beneath me. How's that? then I'll keep rising in elevation and estimation in front of everyone. That have that noble prince act like my humble servant. That's how much above them I am. And have them go lead me through town, shouting out to all, for all to hear, this is what the king does for those who he delights to honor. Oh, yes, that's what I need. I'm surprised he didn't climb that 75-foot gallows just to look down on the people of Shushan from his lofty height. Oh, he intended that. This is pride personified. I just want to be seen of men. Well, verse 10. Sounds good to me. The king said to Haman, Make haste, take the apparel and the horse, as thou hast said. And do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Like, that's the best idea I've ever heard. Man, I, I mean, I guess I kind of have all those things myself. I take the royal robes for granted. It's all I ever wear. And my horse, yeah, I'm, I, it's fine. I can stay in the palace one day. I don't need it. And if you want to look like a little mini-me, <laughs> I'm flattered. So, yeah, go do it for Mordecai the Jew. That's when that must have been the most painful irony for Haman to ever hear. What? To, to, to him? <sighs> the person who is so far beneath me but doesn't act like it and doesn't realize it, and now I have to pretend like I'm beneath him? This would hurt and cut to the very core. Now notice what King Ahasuerus called him. Do so to Mordecai the Jew, 
No wonder Haman had to be vague and say, oh, there's this certain people that are different and rebellious and need to be put down. Because King Ahasuerus seems to have no problem with Jews at all. Mordecai the Jew, yeah, set him up as a mini-me and, and little king for a day and, and treat him, to spoil him, the way you described. Verse 11, then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai, probably plugging his nose and muttering under his breath the whole time, and brought him on horseback through the street of the city and proclaimed before him, probably with no small amount of sarcasm dripping from his teeth, Thus shall it be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Actually, the fact he could even bring himself to say it suggests he was probably just dreaming of the day when he'd be the one re receiving the royal treatment. Oh, it's just a matter of time. The roles, will, the roles will be reversed. And you'll be in your grave, Mordecai, while I'm on the king's horse. In fact, maybe someday I'll be on the king's throne. There have been other servants that have plotted conspiracies against him, after all. Well, verse 12. When it's all done, Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered. So interesting, the different reactions of these two. They've been side by side on several occasions, and it's always oh, Haman trying to force Mordecai down. This time, he ha oh, disgustingly had to lift and raise Mordecai up. But as soon as that king for a day experience is over, what does Mordecai do? He goes back to life as normal. He comes again to the king's gate where he was always just checking in on Esther and making sure everything was okay for her. He treated that king for a day as if it meant nothing to him and went right back to his old life without a second thought. That's humility, unaffected by the praise of the world. As opposed to Haman, who goes back home, I mean, first of all, can you imagine if it, it, roles have been reversed? Uh, and some mighty prince, at least that's probably something on his mind. Okay, the king did say, I, I suggested have the greatest of your princes prance him around on this horse. And he picked me, so I guess I really am, I knew that, I mean, obviously, but I guess the king finally realizes it as well, that I am the noblest of his princes. So. I'll take that as a compliment. Again, maybe that's how he made, endured the experience for the day. But if it had been him on the horse instead of the one leading it, you better believe he would have been milking that for all it was worth. The guy that reminds his wife how many kids they have is going to keep bringing up his king for a day experience every time he's ever with her or with his friends. I don't know how they ever put up with him. But instead, because it wasn't him on horseback, he comes home absolutely devastated. Humility isn't affected by pride. Pride is over-affected by humiliation. So then verse 13, Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. He's probably seeking their pity as well as their outrage, hoping it'll match his own. But then said his wise men, and Zeresh his wife, unto him, and this is interesting what they say, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, oh, we're starting to see the writing on the wall here, then thou shalt not prevail against him, but shalt surely fall before him. If this is just preview of coming attractions, oh, you had planned to hoist him upon the 75-foot 
gallows. Instead, you lifted him up onto the king's own horse. Oh, we're a bit superstitious around here. We've cast the Purim, after all, to land upon our unlucky 13. Ah, maybe this is Providence prophesying. You see, if the Jews have been living among them and there are these prophecies of a remnant returning, some have gone back with Zerubbabel, some will soon go back with Ezra. If, if people in Persia know some of these prophecies, they know what Cyrus had said about the return of the Jews and the building of a temple to their God. Oh, do Persians know that the Jews have a promising future? And to have your own wise men and wife bring that up as a possibility? Ooh, that's not what I want to hear. Verse 14, I'm glad I have good news to get my mind off of the subject. While they were yet talking with him came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. Oh, again, literarily, right on cue. You ready to, I, I mean, in some ways, Haman is being put on the ultimate emotional roller coaster with ups and downs, incredible heights of self-aggrandized glory and then precipitous drops to just feeling, I can't believe I've been reduced to this level. Oh, well, now let's yank it back up and climb the next peak and come to the banquet of Esther. Actually, let's just call it the banquet of Haman since that's really what it is. Is intended to be, right? Chapter 7, let's watch it unfold. They're at the banquet. The king asks Esther a third time, what do you want? I'll give you half the kingdom if you so desire. But then again, as far as Esther's concerned, what would half the kingdom mean when you have a death sentence staring you in the face? Verse 3, she finally says to him, if I have found favor in thy sight, O king, there's the I'm worthy to receive sight of it. And if it please the king, there's the thy will be done side of it, then please let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. You see, this is really the first time that it's going to start dawning on the king. Wait a minute, your people, what are you talking about? Your people are my people. We're all the same, right? We're all Persians. Esther, Ishtar, I mean, <laughs> I married our goddess, and you are that to me. So what are you talking about? Well, I'm, I'm not your people. I'm... I'm God's people. I'm Jehovah's people. I'm Hadassah. I'm a Hebrew. And my people have had the sentence of death passed upon them as far as your empire extends. What, what am I to do? The way she says it at the end, if we'd been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I would have held my tongue. Interesting her own humility here. If it was only slavery we were facing, I, would have, I wouldn't have said a word. We've been through that before as a people. We had four centuries worth of slavery in Egypt, and we came out stronger than ever. And I know God would preserve us if we at least lived 
long enough for him to do so. But it's worse than this. What is being, what's about to happen to us is worse than slavery because at least slaves are sold alive. We are being sold into death. And what are they getting? All of our possessions, the spoils of war, a war we're not allowed to fight. So, verse 5, how does the king respond? He answers and says unto Esther the queen, Who is he? Where is he that doth presume in his heart to do so? I can't imagine who would possibly do such a thing. And the queen answers in verse 6, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. And that's when everything changes. This is the moment where the plot shifts. This is the crescendo and the, the climax and... And all of a sudden, Haman goes dropping off the edge of this roller coaster and going from, I've come to be the one who the king honors to the one who the king knows is public enemy number one. I did this. The verse ends, then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. What a dramatic plot reversal. Verse 7, the king arising from the banquet of wine, it's always present, in his wrath went into the palace garden. He's just going outside to cool off that how could this happen? My own right-hand man would go against my wife and her people. Haman, meanwhile, stood up to make request for his life to Esther the queen. He's still in the room with her, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Oh, well, glad you have a fine grasp of the obvious, Haman. Verse 8, then the king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine, and Haman was fallen upon the bed whereon Esther was. There he is begging for his life, pleading for his own preservation. But what, what does it look like when the king comes back in from the garden and sees Haman there on the, the bed with, with his wife? He says to him, will he force the queen also before me in the house? And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Oh, this is not good optics. What are you doing, Haman? It's bad enough that you wanted to kill my wife and her people. Are you going to rape her first? Oh, it's actually interesting to compare this with the earlier experiences with Vashti, where it was Ahasuerus who was willing to objectify his wife and just let oh, his drunken friends ooh and ah over her beauty. Oh, there's no objectification of Esther here. He's accusing, basically, Haman of doing just that. And you will not do this to my wife or to her people. In verse 9 and 10, Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Oh, behold also the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king. It happens to stand in the house of Haman. Oh, there has that for coincidence. And the king said, hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. So many role reversals through this great book of scripture. Remember the verse that speaks of woe unto those that will dig a pit for their neighbor because they'll fall into it themselves. Well, this is a little more graphic than that. But Haman hanged on the gallows meant for Mordecai or impaled upon the, the pike 75 feet high. Oh, he wanted the people to look up to him. They did, that's for sure. 
stretching, craning their neck, stretching, looking upwards, straining their eyes, wondering who is, oh my goodness, that's Haman. What has he done? In a way, this is another example of that enforced empathy we saw back in Exodus and elsewhere. You, oh, wouldn't feel for someone else and you'll feel like them. In fact, it's a weird twisted way, uh, a twist on the, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Well, that's what happened. You wanted to do that to Mordecai. Well, it was done to you instead. And if that's where we leave Haman, then where does that leave Mordecai? Remember, thanks to that oh, nocturnal history lesson, the king has nothing but good feelings towards Mordecai. I know he's Jewish. That's no problem. Now I know my wife's Jewish too. Huh. Interesting connections here. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman the Jew's enemy unto Esther the queen. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was unto her. She's revealing all kinds of things. She's taking off the, the Purim costumes. Yes, I'm Jewish. And Mordecai is actually my cousin slash father figure. I was raised by him. And the king couldn't be more pleased. He took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Yet more role reversals. Haman sank while he was trying to rise. Mordecai rose when he never tried to do so directly. All he ever did was bow before God. But God lifted him up. His humility elevated him, whereas Morde uh, or Haman's pride went before his fall. There's actually a beautiful quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of Joseph Smith's contemporaries, who said, The mass of men worry themselves into nameless graves, while here and there a great unselfish soul forgets himself into immortality. And that describes Mordecai beautifully one who forgot himself into immortality. We still know his name and know his story. But his people still aren't out of danger yet. We could stop the story here and things look good for, for Esther and Mordecai, but what about the Jewish people scattered throughout the Persian Empire? Verse 3, Esther spake yet again before the king. There's no stopping her now. Okay? I'm, I'm less concerned about uh, surviving his presence. The golden scepter seems to be extended permanently. She falls down at his feet and besought him with tears to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he had devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther, as before. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Now, like I said, this is the second time this has occurred for Esther, but it's the one that she's been hoping for all along. The first was just to soften the king's heart and set up Haman for what he was, and these days of banqueting did all of that. But keep reading and look at verse 5. She's going to ask her real question. In the same format she always seems to. If it please the king, so there's your will, if I have found favor in his sight, there's my worthiness, and the king seem right before thee, let me repeat your will, and I be pleasing in his eyes, let me repeat my worthiness, then please let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, 
which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come upon my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? You see, it wasn't just about her. It was about her people. That's her biggest concern. Even if I can remain safe in the palace, there has to be enlargement and deliverance for my people. And please, can it come through you, mighty king? But here's the problem. Remember the laws of the Medes and the Persians are irrevocable. You can't reverse them. And that's what she asked for. Can you reverse the letters that Haman wrote under your name and with your seal? The king responds in verse 8, Write ye also for the Jews, as it liketh you. So however you want to do this. In the king's name, seal it with the king's ring. And Mordecai's got it now. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. I'm sorry, I, I can't change this. But I can, but, but okay, here's the, here, this is so interesting as far as what the king's solution is. We can't take back the first writing, but we can counteract the first writing with a second writing. I, I hate to break it to you that yes, your lives are in danger, on the 13th day, but maybe we can counteract that by allowing you to defend yourselves. At least let's make this a fair fight then. There was nothing fair about the attacks against you. Let's make it fair to defend yourself and fight back. So Mordecai writes this message. He sends it uh, abroad as far and as wide as Haman's message had gone. He has it translated into all the languages of the realm, just as before. He seals it with the king's name and the king's ring and everything else. And in it, verse 11, the king granted the Jews, which were in every city, to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause, to perish. It's the same language we saw in the first one. All the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. It's amazing how similar the second one is to the first. It's not reversing it, but it's almost giving it a mirror image. And in some ways, I think that's great counsel when it comes to opposing the opposition that we have to face. We saw a lot of that last week with Ezra and Nehemiah. And how do we overcome the opposition that's being thrown all around us? How do we fight history with history, for example? In this, how do we fight attacks? Well, I, I wouldn't say with counterattacks, at least in our day. That was an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of period. Uh, we don't have to bash someone who's bashed us. But we can fight misinformation with information. We can dispel darkness by bringing in light. We can't oh, delete from the internet all the anti-Mormonism that's there. Okay? It's, it's out there. Uh, it's kind of like what Joseph Smith described, though, at the beginning of Joseph Smith history. He says, I'm writing this history to disabuse the public mind. The public mind has been abused with misinformation. And how do I disabuse it? I can't cause them to, to forget what they've read or heard about me. But if I can give them something more accurate, and they can read or hear this, then we'll have to just trust that they'll be discerning and make the right decision. And come away with the right second impression if the first one was so flawed.
I think there's value there, and I think there's a, an example that we can follow, that when someone attacks us, we can't eliminate the attack. But we can respond in such a way that people begin to trust us more than our attackers. And I think that's good, good advice to follow. In verse 15, that seems to be Mordecai's approach at least. Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a great crown of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. This is actually very similar to the king for a day experience he already had. But this is no longer king for a day. This is king's right-hand man, basically for the, the rest of our story today. And whereas Shushan was, or the people of Shushan were perplexed that the Jews were ever deemed an enemy, now they are rejoicing and filled with gladness to see a Jew treated like royalty. Again, it's a matter of fighting darkness with light. We're not your enemy. You don't have to attack us. We are one among you. We are one with you. We are trusted by your own king. And we pray we can be trusted by you as well. Now, is that going to work for everyone? What about all these provinces that are further away and aren't seeing all of this? Well, we'll see what unfolds in just a moment. But notice verse 16 and 17. Despite the gathering darkness... The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness. A feast and a good day. <laughs> I love that. It's a pretty good day. Yeah, you think? Talk about the understatement of the 5th century B.C. In some ways, in this book full of role reversals, there's a, a reversal of sentiments because they went from darkness to light. They went from devastation to gladness. They went from fear to joy. And they went from feeling like the absolute lowest to becoming a, a people of honor. And even when it says they had a feast, Remember the three days of, fa of fasting? Now we're time to, it's time for feasting. And that 13th was going to be the ultimate day of destruction. Well, the day they get the news that they can fight back, that they can defend themselves, well, there's a good day, if ever there was one. The next verse is even more interesting. And many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Now, is that fear in terms of they can defend themselves and they're probably going to kill us instead of us killing them? Well, better to, if you can't beat them, then join them. Or is this fear as in reverence that our own king seems to revere Mordecai? In fact, he must, the Jews must be amazing if he's promoting a Jew as his right-hand man and he's got a Jew in the palace as his right-hand woman. Is the word spreading now that Hadassah is the real identity of Esther? And oh, the, the people of Jehovah, oh, they are rising in the ranks among the Persians as well. And these people, interest, despite the danger that the Jews were facing, now people are joining them. 
it's actually one of my favorite things about opposition that it's often the evidence that the truth is at work. It sometimes offends the sensibilities of good people as they start feeling, why are people picking on the Latter-day Saints? I mean, that was one of the things that convinced Oliver Cowdery's brother to join the church eventually, or, or ultimately, finally. He sees all this Missouri persecution and it softens his heart in a way that his own brother's personal experiences and testimony hadn't done. Uh, or the story of an amazing young woman who went to see the Book of Mormon musical on Broadway and came out and was so disgusted by it all that she wanted to see what the real story of Mormonism was all about. And once she read the real, the, the real Book of Mormon, she knew it was true and she joined the church. I mean, it's interesting that sometimes our opposers can then become our promoters. And that people that one day were going to fight against the Jews find themselves becoming Jews the next day. Well, this is worthy of rejoicing, and it's a time to celebrate. And so chapter 9 of Esther, as we approach the end of our story, is where we get this feast of Purim. Verse 1, now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, this is the great and dreadful day of the Lord, in a way. This is the day that the house of Israel is supposed to be destroyed, but instead will be preserved. When the king's commandment and his decree drew near to be put in execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. I love that phrase. It was turned to the contrary. That's exactly what will happen at the second coming. As the wicked who seemed to rejoice over the righteous Will, will find themselves on the, the short end of that stick with a role reversal with eternal consequences. To see the negativity that they faced and the, the opposition that they endured turned to the contrary, it's amazing how good God is at that, of taking ashes and turning it to the contrary and giving beauty, of taking the crucifixion and turning it to the contrary in the resurrection. To take the martyrdom of Joseph Smith and Hiram and turning it to the contrary as it fortified the faith of their followers. To take the, the suffering of the pioneers and turning it to the contrary as oh, iron wills were forged in that, those fires of faith. I don't know what the future holds specifically in the aftermath of all this time period of such secularization and loss of faith in the world, but I do have faith in a God who turns things to the contrary. As Elder Maxwell once said, how ironic that the so-called post-Christian era will come to an end with the coming of Christ. There is the great and dreadful day of the Lord. and. It will be great for the righteous, dreadful for the wicked. There is something of an Armageddon here in verse 2 and 3. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurt. They are defending themselves as the decree gave them permission to do. And no man could withstand them. They're fighting for their lives here. For the fear of them fell upon all people, and all the rulers of the provinces, and the lieutenants, and the deputies, and officers of the king helped the Jews 
because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. They honor and revere Mordecai just like the king seems to. And so the people that at one point could have and probably would have turned on the Jews now turn to join them and end up defending them uh, against their enemies. This is a complete turning of the tables. And there's more of that to come. Verse 4, Mordecai, who was always seen so lowly, outside the gate of the palace, is now great in the king's house. And his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. A reversal of fortunes for him, a reversal of fortunes for his people. Well, the Jews defeat their enemies that day. And, in fact, remember when Haman kept bragging about the size of his, his family, the number of his, his posterity? Well, he had ten sons, and they were all slain on that day. In a way, this ends the, the line of this Agagite, which is what Saul was supposed to do centuries before. It took a later Benjamite to accomplish that work. But now it's done. His line has ended. It's like Goliath killed by, by David, but then his, his sons killed throughout Philistia as well. They're, they're, in some ways, what I think the Lord is hinting at here is the day of righteousness will come. The day of enlargement and deliverance will come. And it will spell the absolute end of the opposition that you have faced through all of your history. That is cause to celebrate indeed. But just to be sure, and this is where the story gets a little interesting, Esther asks the king for one more, one more request. Will you allow us to extend our decree by one day? So not just on the 13th can we defend ourselves against our enemies, but can we do it again on the 14th? Now, this is tricky because... Some have considered this absolutely unjustifiable violence. You've defeated your enemies. It's all good. You've got your enemy, you've got your foot on their neck. Let it go. And so is Esther just bloodthirsty? And hey, look at all we did today. Let's just extend it for another 24 hours. If it is, then that was wrong. And you went beyond eye for an eye. And you're being unjust in your vengeance. On the other hand, and I would hope that we can, I mean, Esther has proven that she deserves us the benefit of the doubt. I would say the same for Mordecai. And so it makes me wonder, do they know something that we don't? In fact, if there was just a day to fight the Jews, are the, mo the ones most against them going to just hide out now that they know that, well, they can fight back? But just this one day, let's just, let's lie low for the 13th and come and attack them tomorrow. I don't know all the reasons, but if, if we are extending some, some grace here and trying to understand, there does come this second day. And to me, if nothing else, is it God's way of reassuring us that there will come a time where all evil is ended? It's all behind you. The great and dreadful day, or days, if more than one are needed, has passed. And you never have to worry again about people coming after you. Remember, this could have spelled the end of the Jewish people as we know it. No righteous remnant. 
and instead it's going to be the absolute end of the opposition. We see that in verse 16, the Jews throughout the empire gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies. In verse 17, they made it a day of feasting and gladness like before. In 19, it was a day of gladness and feasting and a good day and of sending portions one to another. That's why on Purim they do just that. They send portions one to another. They give food to others. They provide for the poor and the needy. It's trick-or-treating with, no tr with no tricks. It's all treats because God has, has delivered us. Uh, it's amazing what... The, the, the change that took place because of one young woman with the courage to stand. Well, Mordecai establishes these two days as days of celebration forever after. And in verse 22, As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, instead of fasting and sorrow, and of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor, it's role reversal all over again. The, the poor will be provided for. The lowly will be lifted. The, the prideful will be brought low. Every valley shall be exalted and the mountains brought low. The crooked straight and the rough places plain. That's the millennial reign. That's the celestial kingdom. That's the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's God stepping in and fixing all that's gone wrong in life. And that's, that's the celebration of Purim. In verse 24, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them and had cast Pur, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them, no wonder, verse 26, wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. The lots, im is the plural ending, so casting lots, and it's been celebrated as a day of deliverance ever since. It was Haman that cast those lots, hoping that providence would step in. Well, providence did. Not on Haman's side, though, but on the side of the people of God. Uh, his, his hand is shining through the experiences of this incredible book. I hope that we've seen him. Chapter 9 ends then with verse 28. These days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, every city, and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Now you see why they... Keep celebrating it every year. Why, as a college student 25 years ago, I got to go and participate on that night of celebration, booing and hissing every time I heard Haman's name. And the more you know his story, the more sincere those boos and hiss come. This is a chance for Jews to pass down their sacred past. And as members of the House of Israel, it's our sacred past as well. Are we passing down traditions to honor our pioneer forefathers? Do we take a moment on December 23rd to think about the birth of the Prophet Joseph? 
Do we celebrate Easter and Christmas in the ways that remind our children and all of us the real meaning behind those days? Uh, yes, you'll go ahead and have fun and get dressed up and make your noisemakers. But more than anything, share your portion. Give your good gifts. Recognize the hand of God in all of this. Reread your scripture. <laughs> they read it in its entirety. And by the time they get to this point where they realize we're doing this, we're fulfilling this command, then there's only one little chapter left, just three short verses. In Esther chapter 10, where it all comes full circle. We started chapter 1 meeting Ahasuerus in all of his glory, and we end in chapter 10 with another nod to the king's almighty power. But that power, or that spotlight, quickly shifts back from Ahasuerus to Mordecai. And we get the last word of this chapter about him. In verse 2, the attention has turned to the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereunto the king advanced him. And then verse 3, the whole book ends, For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, rather than his own, which is what Haman would have done, and speaking peace to all his seed, instead of fomenting violence as Haman had tried. And the, and the story ends. Ironically, the book of Esther ends with Mordecai. How does that work? I, I thought we were getting past this oh, gender imbalance and, and giving women their rightful due. Well, we are. But I think there's something to this ending with Mordecai. You see, as we've seen throughout the Old Testament, there are types and shadows of Christ everywhere we look. And there are both male and female types of, uh, and shadows of the Savior. I think we typically see Esther, since she's the star of our story, and star is what her name means, uh, but surely she is the Messiah figure in this story. And she is. She is a mediator for her people. She goes and faces the powers that be to be able to defend her people. She's willing to die, if necessary, to preserve them. She knows that enlargement and deliverance will come through her efforts, if it be God's will. In fact, it happened on the third day, as she was facing the possibility of death, and yet life emerged on that third day instead. Even the phrase in chapter 7, verse 3 that we read, Let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. That made perfect sense for Esther, literally. Preserve me as a Jew, preserve my people who are Jews as well. But if we take her as a type and shadow of Christ, she couldn't ask, or he couldn't ask for both. He could not ask for his deliverance as well as his people's deliverance. It would be one or the other. And Christ gratefully put our life first and was willing to die that we might live. Yes, Esther is an incredible type and shadow of Jesus. She is a Messiah in this chapter. But so is Mordecai. Re rethink the story and put him, since we ended with him, we're meant to, let, to leave this story with him and his example lingering in our minds. 
And so Mordecai is a Messiah figure as well. He's the only one who never bowed to Haman. He is singled out as Haman's greatest enemy. Uh, a gallows was set up for him, and yet it was the enemy that was placed upon it. Remember the first messianic prophecy that the serpent will bruise the Messiah's heel, but he will, the Messiah will crush the serpent's head? That's what happened on the gallows of Christ on the cross. Yeah, Mordecai was given authority by the king. In fact, he was arrayed in royal apparel. The city rejoiced at his coming. He was second only to the king. And he blessed all of the people. And the people blessed him. Yes, Mordecai is an amazing Messiah figure in this narrative. But if he's a type and shadow of Christ, then do we have to recast Esther? And the beauty of symbolism is it can re represent so many things and so many layers to it. But if we allow Mordecai to play the part of Messiah in this setting, can we recast Esther in a second role? She can assume them both. But she can now be recast as the house of Israel itself, as all of us, that we are each Esther here. And it is Mordecai who watches over and guides and directs each of us. She is cast in the role of a bride, after all, in this story. And here we are, the house of Israel, the bride of Christ, trying to prepare ourselves to wear the beautiful white raiment. It's probably going to take more than 12 months of purification on our part, and all kinds of myrrh and sweet savor, and anything else that we can do to prepare ourselves for that that rendezvous with the Redeemer, the marriage supper of the, of the King of Kings. We, like her, didn't come from an ideal situation. She had no parents that she knew of, but was raised by someone who loved her and cared for her. Oh, Israel itself, we're not better than any other people. We have our own lowly beginnings, but God has chosen us for a wise purpose in him. Esther always obeyed Mordecai's commands. Anything he suggested, she saw the wisdom of it and, and responded accordingly. She saw it as her responsibility to, deli to deliver others. And as members of the house of Israel, that is our role. The baptismal font is the burden we bear on our backs. And we are meant to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. My friends, we can do as, as the Lord commands. We can follow the counsel of, of the man Mordecai. We can choose to stand up and be different from the wicked world. We can have the courage to recognize that we're Hadassah and not Esther that we are house of Israel and not the people of Persia. More than anything, we can make sure that deliverance and enlargement comes. We can have the courage to say, if I perish, I perish. Socially, economically, whatever it might be, but to live in such a way that we bear witness to the fact that God indeed 
has saved us for this final dispensation. That we can do the work that he has laid out for us in our time and in our place. That we can look in the mirror and see a Hadassah staring back. Reassuring us that yes, indeed, we have been sent to the kingdom for such a time as this.